Good morning. I'm going to call to order the Board of Supervisors meeting of October 10th, 2023. I'm going to ask our county clerk to take the roll and read how people can participate remotely. Thank you. Supervisor Rice? Here. Supervisor Lucan? Here. Supervisor Sackett? Here. Supervisor Radoni? Here. Supervisor Moulton Peters? Here. For joining us today on Zoom and would like to participate, please use the raise hand icon located on your screen. If you are participating by landline, please press star 9 to raise your hand. When it's your turn to speak, your name will be called and you'll be asked to unmute your device. If you are participating by landline, you will hear that you are unmuted. That concludes the instructions and I will pass the meeting back to President Moulton Peters. Great. Okay, uh, before we take public comment, I'm going to spend a little time this morning in light of um, recent events talking about respectful dialogue and civility in our meetings. Uh, the Marin County Board of Supervisors encourages a respectful dialogue that supports freedom of speech and diversity of opinion. The board, staff, and members of the public are expected to be civil and courteous and refrain from questioning the character or motives of others participating in the meeting. Additionally, we've received some concerns from community members recently about civility during public comment on the Board of Supervisors meetings and other county meetings. And specifically, residents have indicated personal attacks about community members participating in county meetings are causing people to stop participating in these county meetings. So I'm going to reiterate that we welcome and value public comment on the issues that we are collectively addressing. And in providing your input, we ask that you address your remarks to the Board of Supervisors on the issue before the Board and refrain from personal attacks or other behavior that discourages public participation. So I'm going to thank everyone for your cooperation. Also, I want to have a moment of silence and just a moment on recent events in the Middle East. I, I know all of us mourn the loss of innocent lives in Israel and Palestine. And our thoughts are with all of those who are affected by this horrendous act of terrorism. We must reject all forms of violence and condemn the hate and aggression that have torn families and communities apart for too long. We cannot allow these acts to destroy our commitment to building a more just and peaceful Middle East and world. And with that, I'm going to call for a moment of silence and then we'll open to public comment. Okay, thank you. We'll resume our meeting now. This is time item number one, open time for public expression, not on the Board of Supervisors agenda. You're welcome to come. Please state your name and uh, you have two minutes. Good morning. Okay. Uh, before I start my two minutes, I'd just like to say something personal to uh, Supervisor Rodoni. Um, on behalf of the various groups that I'm active in, the Seniors for Peace, etc., uh, we thank you for your participation in Saturday's event with uh, Leah of Rothstein um, in your interest. All right, um, my name is Nancy Miller. I live at the Redwoods, and I represent the Mill Valley Seniors for Peace. A number of colleagues of mine from the Friends of Golden Gate Village and the Save Our City Coalition will also be speaking this morning. We recognize that the county is trying to comply with the provisions of SB 35 
SB 35 was intended to bring affordable housing to communities that had failed to do their part. We feel that the county instead has used SB 35 to um, force another huge development at 825 Drake in a tiny historically black community of Marin City that already has a grossly disproportionate amount of the entire county's public and affordable housing and housing density. Meanwhile, the surrounding white and wealthy Marin County communities, and in particular, the unincorporated communities under the board's purview are allowed to continue offering little or no affordable housing, but at the same time, have large open green spaces and related recreational facilities for their residents to enjoy. My colleagues will be presenting the relevant facts underlying these conclusions. The information comes from the, the uh, chart that I believe is in front of you um, that uh, from the countywide the uh, housing element, chapter two entitled housing needs analysis. And with that, I would like to uh, move on to, to uh, one of my colleagues. Good morning, my name is Barb Killey. I'm addressing the disparity in allocation of public and low income housing throughout the county. It's not an overstatement to say that the county, contrary to the goals of SB 35, continues to use Marin City as a dumping ground for low income housing. Marin City already bears 60% of the entire county's public housing, 296 of the county's 496 units. In the category of publicly assisted housing, Marin City's 479 units are almost half the county's total, and the addition of 75 units at 825 Drake would increase the number to 554, 15% increase. It's no secret that concentrations of low-income housing create segregated and resource-poor communities. Despite these unacceptable consequences, we allocated and funded 75 more housing units at 825 Drake. Next highest, but not even close, in low-income housing allocation is Strawberry. With over twice the area of Marin City, Strawberry hosts only 11% of the county's public housing compared to Marin City's 60%. The chart that you have from the housing element shows that disparities in allocation of low-income housing are even more staggering in all the other and unincorporated county areas. These areas are much larger, but have been and remain 97 to 99% white. You may think that these disparities were created before you were in office, but the 825 Drake decision made when all of you were in office using an unacceptable interpretation of SB 35 to justify it will significantly increase the allocation of low-income housing and its dire consequences in the already most overburdened, under-resourced, lowest-income and least white community in the county of Marin. Thank you. Uh, good morning. My name is Linda Sheridan, and I've lived in Mill Valley since 1973 and just want to address the issues having to do with density, having to do with housing with five or more units versus uh, single family homes. So over 60% uh, 
of Marin City is comprised of buildings with five or more units, and more, most often many have more than five. Contrasting this in Strawberry, only 4.2% have more than five units. Tam Homestead Valley, it's only 4.5. Kentfield, 7.6. Santa Venetia, 4.3. And Marinwood, Lucas Valley has no housing units with five or more, no housing with five or more units. Contrast this with the location of single family homes. In Marin City, only 28.6% of the homes are single family homes. In Strawberry, it's almost 50%, 49.4. All of the remaining unincorporated areas, including Tam, Homestead Valley, Kentfield, Santa Venetia, and Marinwood Lucas Valley, range from 88.4% to 97.7% single family homes. So I would like to just encourage the, you know, I'm very much against the 825. Um, Drake proposal and um, want to see these things balanced out. Thank you. I'm Ann DeVero Rosenfeld with Friends of Golden Gate Village. Um, and I'm going to talk about green space in Marin City. Compared to other unincorporated, the rest of incorporated uh, Marin, uh, Marin County, Marin City has a huge disparity when it comes to community green space. Marin City has one park with astroturf and concrete. Contrast this with the community space in, other, in the other unincorporated areas. Lucas Valley Marinwood, a 1,200-acre preserve, 800 acres of open space, three public parks and a pool. Homestead Valley, 80-plus acres open space, three parks, a community center, and a pool. Strawberry, three parks, a recreational center with a pool, four tennis courts, soccer field, two baseball fields, and a gymnasium. Tamil Pius Valley, two parks, a community center, a recreational cabin on a creek, and many hiking trails and access to Tennessee Beach. There are now two lawsuits that allege procedural mistakes, one for erroneously approving $40 million in tax-exempt bonds because you didn't think you had discretion to disapprove, which we all know now is false, and a second lawsuit um, it's on the front page of the IJ today, that alleges that the county did not do the proper and required environmental impact assessment. 825 Drake is one of the last open spaces in Marist City that had actual grass and trees. The developer has, always ripped out the, has already ripped out the grass and trees, including a heritage redwood, on this sacred land at 825 Drake, which was one the, once the site of a beloved church. The county t needs to take the moral high ground, correct the mistakes that have been made concerning 825 Drake, and give Caleb Bro Roop his walking papers. Cede the decisions over to, eight, uh, uh, over to Marin City community. They're prepared to conduct a resident-wide process to determine how this process should be used. Marin City needs a win on this one, and we need you to make it happen. Thank you. Is there anyone else in the chambers? I'm not seeing. Are you speaking? Yes, please come up. Lauren Lupia, and I am director to the Enterprise Resource Center. We are a project of mental health advocates in Marin. We are a behavioral health drop-in center located in the Canal District of San Rafael. And it's really a haven for folks that are have a mental health challenge and or substance use disorder. 
Uh, today, our budget, our new budget is going in front of you to be voted on, and we just wanted to say we really appreciate your support so we continue to do the good work that we're doing. Thanks. Uh, and we'll take additional public comment on this item at the ag agenda. Okay, let's go online. Are, are you speaking on this behavioral health? Why don't you Why don't you wait until we get to it on the agenda? Thanks. Okay, uh, general public comment online, please. The first speaker is Susan Mattinger. Please unmute. Susan, please unmute. <laughs> yes. Go ahead. Hi there. I was. Um, I don't seem to be able to. Um, get my uh, my camera to work because we I'm hear you a technological doofus but uh, so I'm sorry to have to make you look at a, a, a black square but anyway good morning and thank you so much for uh, taking my comment my name is Susan Mottinger I'm a resident of Tiburon I'd just like to reiterate the um, the fairness issue with concern to the uh, allocation of, a, of Section 8 housing in Marin City, and particularly with respect to the 825 project. Um, it seems to be kind of the same old, same old um, with um, affordable housing and low-income housing being concentrated in Marin City. Um, the idea behind Section 8 housing is that it would allow people choice in order to diversify the socioeconomic profile of communities um, throughout um, a given geographic area, but we're seeing that um, it's being concentrated in Marin City. It's been pointed out, and I'll just reiterate quickly, that Tam Valley is eight times bigger than Marin City with a nearly 3,000 acres of open space and yet has over 78 units. They want to put an additional 74 with minimal parking in, an air, in the last open space area within Marin City. Lucas Valley is 10 times bigger than Marin City with 3,700 acres, has only 80 units of affordable housing. Um, and um, the, um, you know, within the county-wide um, plan, we need, to, we need to reanalyze this. This is an equity issue. This is a social issue. This is an important issue with respect to the diversity and social opportunities for various and, and diverse groups of people to live together and come to a greater understanding of one another. So I hope you will take that into consideration in your future dealings with respect to 825 Drake. Thank you very much for your time. The next speaker is Donna Fife. Please unmute. Thank you very much. Um, and I know that election machines are connected to the internet, that voter rolls are outdated and in some cases with illegal registration and are in non-compliance with the Judicial Watch and the Los Angeles um, County request to update. Uh, we have chain of custody of envelopes with ballots um, is actually non-existent. Um, we have, a, in one of the last elections, we had a four-day pause in tabulation of election results due to inadequate staffing. In addition, Marin is out of compliance with the Department of Defense election machine requirements. I'm here today to ask the Board of Supervisors to return to one-day voting in local precincts with paper ballots and voter IDs. This would allow for same-day, election day, 
voting and tabulation of voting results at the precinct level. This will provide transparency, more secure voting, and same day tabulation and results. If it will also be more cost effective. The county has done this in the past successfully. The Board of Supervisors needs to pay attention to what is transpiring with voter registrars in Shasta County, Riverside County, Nevada counties, who are addressing these issues up front now before the next election. I also want to remind you, the Board of Supervisors and the voter registrar, that over 600 citizens filed affidavits in the past that went unanswered. The county is accountable for election integrity and is empowered to do so. I ask you to act now to resolve this issue before the primary in March. Thank you. The next speaker is Clayton Smith. Please unmute. Tony Fauci, AKA America's doctor, made his brief appearance in Miranda at the Showcase Theater last Thursday evening. The event was attended by over 100 individuals protesting in a demonstration of his conduct uh, during Operation COVID. Although boisterous at times, it was a peaceful protest. A similar protest demonstration occurred at his previous event in San Mateo the night before. What was most noticeable was the most was the remarkably tight security present. Fauci himself came and went by the back door. His coming and going protected by both numerous private security guards driving around in black sedans, but also by perhaps a dozen San Rafael police and county sheriffs. It had the air of a cartel boss fearing for his life amidst the consequences of his actions, his victims and frauds. This was so appropriate and emblematic given how the medical industrial complex behaved during the operation COVID where the cartelization of healthcare was put on display for all to see its corruption and most particularly its oppressive reaction to any dissent. Sadly, the damage the policies Fauci worked to inflict on our country and much of the world will live on long after him. We should remember this going forward. Thank you. The next speaker is Rodrigo Izquierdo. Please unmute. Hi. Mr. President Peters, um, I'd like to, what you just said in the beginning was on courtesy, and I want to inform you that the Human Rights Commission, as of right now, canceled another meeting, and they have stopped uh, producing the recordings because their meetings are so outrageous and so unlawful and discourteous to the people that I, I'm wondering why you are not, a, or are not applying any of these courtesies of, on behavior and following the law like the Brown Act with them. So they seem to be exempt from any kind of uh, social behavior. And, and so is that exactly, and, you, and then also you're putting them 
you want to put them in charge of the sheriff uh, special equipment of that uh, Bradley tank, you're, you're picking on the wrong people. So in, in a way, they can't even uh, produce anything that they're supposed to by their own bylaws. They can't even have a meeting. They, they were supposed to have a retreat that they canceled. They're supposed to have produced a annual report, which they also cannot produce. They can't seem to do anything and still you permit them because, of, because they just simply are, uh, they only exist in name only. So with a few seconds that I have, I went to the, uh, the Golden Gate to Marin City for the sheriff's um, uh, community group where it was only attended by white people except for three black ladies. There were no black men. So they, so, and they were asked if the sheriff has any, gonna, going to have any tax. And they said, no, a Bradley is considered a, a, a light armored tank. So in a way, the people who conducted the meeting are lying. And so <clears throat> now you're gonna use that as some kind of basis for the Human Rights Commission to use as a fact, that's a, that's a lie. President Mullen-Peters, there are no additional speakers in the queue. Okay, we have one more in the chamber. Thank you, Supervisor uh, Moulton-Peters. Um, I apologize for not being better prepared today. I think all of us have had a, a emotional couple days the past few days, it's been rough. Um, I lived through the attacks uh, during 9-11, and a lot of people are saying this is Israel's 9-11, and I would just beg everyone not to make the mistakes that we made after 9-11. Uh, revenge, killings, uh, disproportionate uh, attacks on civilians. It, we can't afford that anymore. We can't afford it environmentally, and our country is not so strong that it can continue to do that. So please, let's all try to proceed um, carefully. Um, I'd also like to point out to uh, that the Financial Times uh, reported recently in the wake of these attacks um, that the Netanyahu government was given uh, a lot of warning that these attacks were coming. And of course, this was the 50th anniversary. There are a lot of questions. There are a lot of similarities to the attacks of 9-11. Um, Haaretz, which is the preeminent uh, publication in Israel, uh, reported the, uh, the links between Netanyahu and Hamas, that he favored Hamas. Uh, he thought he could do better with Hamas, and look where we are now. Um, a little while ago, Israelis were protesting in the street because of the constitutional rights that he had stripped, Netanyahu had stripped from them. Uh, this, is a, this is a very advantageous moment for Netanyahu. It's time for people to look at this soberly. Uh, I've got 30 seconds. I want to point out that there was another death October 1 in the Marin County Jail. This was the second death in 51 days. I wrote it as much as I knew about it. Uh, I, I wrote about it uh, at marincountyconfidential.substack.com. I'd like to tell you that our per inmate death rate is higher both than Santa Rita Jail and Rikers Island. We only have 245 inmates on average. Uh, we we should not be losing. To, these are hanging deaths. It, it should not have happened. Thank you. Thank you. We'll close public comment now and bring it back to agenda item number two, and that's the Board of Supervisors matters and our county administrator's report. I'm going to start with Vice President Radoni. Good morning. <clears throat> I had a fairly busy couple weeks, and I wanted to mention a few of those. 
On Saturday evening, I attended the San, San Geronimo Valley Gala. It's an annual event that supports the San Geronimo Community Center. This year, they were honoring Dave Court on his retirement after 32 years as executive director. And on next week's agenda, we'll pass a resolution in his honor. Earlier on Saturday, as was mentioned, I attended the event in Point Reyes Station where Mary Morgan moderated a conversation with Leah Rothstein, co-author of Just Act and Action, and she discussed how we came to be such a segregated society and what we can do to begin to change that. Also, a week ago, Friday, the Tamales Bay Foundation held its eighth State of the Tamales Bay, and it was well attended and very informative. Thursday, a week ago, over 85 ag representatives plus many county staff members attended the Agricultural Roundtable <clears throat> event at San Geronimo Commons. This is an uh, event that happens every couple years, and I think it was successful because many of the attendees asked to do it once a year. So we'll see if we can accommodate them. <clears throat> and then uh, a week ago Saturday, the Homestead Valley Land Trust celebrated its 75th, 75th anniversary, uh, naturally with a potluck and a community center event. Uh, I'd like to adjourn in memory today of, of three people. Uh, West Marin's Randall Fleming's an architect by trade. His greatest virtue was his ability to know and connect deeply with everyone he encountered and with the area of Point Reyes that he held dear. Larry Smith, a longtime Nacashel resident, is remembered for his commitment to environmental conservation and support of the arts and library and his leadership on the Marin Conservation League. And then Eva Long, recently retired College of Marin board member, died at the age of 81. She was recognized uh, late last summer with a board resolution acknowledging her contributions to Marin. And as President Moulton Peters uh, mentioned earlier at the beginning of the meeting, the recent terrorist attacks in Israel is a tragic reminder of the devastating consequences of violence and extremism. Our hearts go out to the innocent victims, their families, who have been affected by this senseless act. Terrorism can never achieve the goals of justice or security, and it is our collective responsibility to reject and work towards a world where conflicts are resolved through peaceful means. Um, thank you. Supervisor Sackett. Thank you so much. Um, so over the last couple of weeks, I've had the opportunity to join a lot of neighborhood associations in their kind of fall gatherings. Um, thank you, Stephen Torrance, for joining me in Lucas Valley. Appreciated. We had a great turnout to talk about preparedness there. Um, this past weekend, uh, the Los Ranchitos neighborhood got together for the first time post-COVID and had over 100 people um, gather for tacos, which was really um, just a nice, fun connection with the community. And in that vein, I also want to adjourn in memory of Richard McGrath, a um, neighborhood um, advocate and volunteer. Rich McGrath served in the Air Force and moved to Marin in 1969 with his wife, Shirley. When he retired as a railroad conductor in 2004, he became a volunteer here at the Civic Center. He spent 15 hours a week here. He was the guy who raised and lowered the, the flags at the Civic Center every day, including weekends, um, eight, eight flags every day. Um, he also served on the Marin County Search and Rescue Team for nine years, which uh, supported the Sheriff's Department during the county fair and he loved supporting the Sheriff's Department during the fair so much that after 
finishing with the search and rescue team, he continued to do that work. He served on the Santa Venetia Neighborhood Association Board, on the Smart Civic Center Station Design Advisory Committee. He was a little league coach and an assistant scoutmaster. He was dependable, reliable, fun, and was always looking for something here on the Civic Center campus to clean, replace, or repair. So we appreciate all that he did, and our thoughts are with his wife, Shirley. Supervisor Rice. Yeah, thank you. Um, my only item today is uh, I'd like to um, adjourn in memory of longtime resident and um, town council, San Anselmo Town Council member Kay Coleman, who recently passed away. Um, as a nearly 50-year resident of San Anselmo, Kay Coleman exemplified the meaning of being a town leader. As a teacher at Drake High School and a member of the town's Park and Recreation Commission, as community resources director for the town, and finally for 10 years as member of the town council, Kay, Kay gave her time, energy, and skill towards efforts to bring the community together. Some of Kay's most lasting work is through the many signature events and community gatherings she put together that are still going strong and have become great traditions in the town. These include the annual Beatles tribute, the annual Picnics on the Plaza concert series, which has morphed into Live on the Avenue, and the Halloween-oriented Goblins Bootacular trick-or-treating event. Kay Coleman will be remembered fondly by many, many former students, by the hundreds of volunteers she engaged with over the, she engaged over the years, by staff and colleagues at the town of San Anselmo, and by the community at large for bringing us all together so many times in so many ways. Her warm and generous spirit lives on in the community she loved so well. Thank you. Commissioner Luthen. Thank you. Uh, Last week I had the opportunity to swing by a clean slate event that was in Novato and just want to express my appreciation to the public defender, probation, um, uh, the DA, uh, various different county departments, North Marine Community Services for hosting that event. Uh, it was really a, a, a great opportunity to see all the different service providers coming together uh, to assist those that are justice involved um, through the direct services, but also some of the indirect services that were provided. Uh, I was just there for a, a brief period of time and. Uh, in a five to ten minute window, there was an extremely low income um, uh, older adult that was able to qualify for a, a cell phone uh, and was handed to her with a you know one year service and uh, these are the, the things that are are provided here in our community that you know i 'm learning about every single day, but to see somebody uh, be able to get connected uh, in that aspect to be able to connect with services was just really neat to see uh, the community coming together and all of our county departments um, providing that service. Um, and then secondly, I, I see Chief Weber here. I just want to express my appreciation. There was a control burn that took place in the greater Nevada area last week. Uh, the proactive communication, the notification that went out, um, I think turned that to, to be a, 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 real, a real success and uh, alleviate some of the concerns that may have been there in the community. And I just want to express my appreciation for you and all of those that were involved uh, in that coordinated effort. Thank you. Thank you, and I'll add a few things. It is the fall, and it's a busy season. Locally, uh, I attended the Marin City Job Fair on the 26th of September. A lot of Marin County departments were there and sponsored this event, uh, and they were well represented along with other local nonprofit agencies. So thank you to everyone who participated in that. Uh, I took uh, part in International Walk to School Day at Strawberry Point School. Always love that event, seeing the kids walk and bike to school. 
and took a docent tour of our own Marin Civic Center. And if you haven't done that, there are a lot of things you can learn about Civic Center on that tour. I recommend it. And then on behalf of the Board of Supervisors, I attended both the 30th Annual Spirit of Marin Awards honoring the volunteers and local businesses that contribute so much to our communities uh, and are nominated by local chambers of commerce. And also the Marin History Museum benefit with Supervisor Rice. We were there to honor uh, both um, former Mayor Al Burrow and uh, Gary Reggianti, uh, former Vice President of the Board. Uh, and for their service on bringing Marin history to life in our communities. I want to um, adjourn today in honor of two trailblazer women who certainly uh, made their mark. Uh, the first, uh, local Beverly Savitt of Belvedere, a, uh, a judge, one of the first two female judges appointed uh, to Marin County. She was born in 1926 and graduated from Carnegie Institute of Technology, now called Carnegie Mellon. And I only point that out because in 1946, there weren't too many women graduating from Carnegie Mellon, I don't think. Uh, she went on to get a law degree eventually from UC Berkeley in 1967, and Jerry Brown appointed her to the Superior Court bench in 1982. Uh, she was uh, known for being a trailblazer and was the second female president of the Marin County Bar Association and many other organizations. But the other thing I liked hearing about her that speaks to the work that we all do in public service is that she would really bring the community in on the, on the work she was doing. She would knock on doors before she became a judge of neighbors mm -hmm. and make sure they understood what was happening and encouraged everyone to be part of making things better in the community. And I think that's an important hallmark of public service. And then I also want to just acknowledge the passing of uh, our Senator Dianne Feinstein who had an illustrious career. You've all been reading about her, but it really was remarkable for me as a young woman at work to watch her in office, uh, 1969 elected to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, 1978 succeeded Mayor George Marsconi after he and Supervisor Harvey Milk were killed at City Hall, and then was elected to the U.S. Senate in 1992 and served with distinction championing gay rights and lesbian rights, gun control, and other important issues to California. So uh, I ask that we adjourn in her name as well as all the other good people mentioned here today. And with that, I'd like to move to the County Administrator. Good morning, Matthew. Good morning, Supervisors. Just one amendment to our agenda. In the afternoon when we have our interviews and appointments, I wanted to point out uh, item 10C, um, after we posted the agenda, it was brought to our attention that the open space representative as well as the ag representative, agriculture representative, is based on a recommendation and then your board confirmed. So the only item that would be before you this afternoon would be the at-large appointment. And so when we get to that item, you can either consider uh, continuing it for further consideration, scheduling interviews, or making the at-large appointment. So I just wanted to point that out, that change out. Good. All right, with that, we'll open to public comment. Good morning. Thank you. I, I wanted to add to Stephanie Moulton-Peters' comments about uh, the late Senator Dianne Feinstein that Feinstein, um, her career had uh, a redemptive arc in many ways. Um, she was very pro-police, and she had voted uh, for the invasion of Iraq 
And uh, later she, she came to see that many of the actions that we took um, with regard to detainees had been flawed and she did, um, she did somewhat redeem herself in that, in that manner. Um, it is also true that she um, came to support the LGBTQ movement, but that was not her early situation. She had always been allied with Dan White, who was the man who assassinated Harvey Milk, of course, but notably, she had always sided with Dan White, uh, who assassinated uh, Mayor Moscone. Without the assassination of Mayor Moscone, there never would have been a Senator Feinstein. She had run for mayor twice and failed, um, and she was elevated by those assassinations. And it's a very, very strange, very strange story. I do want to tell you another strange story. <laughs> Report back, since you mentioned the DA, uh, I went to uh, watch uh, some hearings recently in Marin County Superior Court, and I got to watch our one of our deputy DAs in action. And I was, uh, this is not the first time I've seen this. Uh, the deputy DA was reading the rap sheet of uh, the defendant, and it was a very long rap sheet. And the sister of the defendant, when she got a moment, stood up and said, because a lot of these things occurred in Orange County, she said, my brother's never been to Orange County. And um, the judge asked, what was the birth date on the rap sheet? It was something, something, 1958. And he asked the defendant, what is your date of birth? It was very clear this guy was in his 30s. And his birth date was something, something, 1985. That's not the first time I've seen the same name with a different birth date on a defendant. Our DA is Thank you. in disarray. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I'm not seeing any other comments in the chamber. I see two hands online. Our speaker is supposed to be scheduled. He's on mute. like to direct my comments to Supervisor Lucan. Um, you heard uh, my little being upset over the Human Rights Commission they, because of their discourtesy, disorganization, and, and wanton disregard for laws. They're from Novato. The chair and the other person, two people from Novato, came in as a, as a group which seem to have their own agenda. And they and I know that um, your consul, Washington, tried to teach them the Brown Act, and they're still not going to do it. They're just not going to do it. So since they, they are your district, Supervisor Lucan, I suppose you, why don't you talk to them? And if you can't get any place with them, if you are unsuccessful, then then we sh you should propose that they be that they be removed for lack of for malfeasance for their behavior that does not uh, go along with what uh, Mon Super uh, President Mullen Peter said at the beginning of courtesy. They're very intimidating. And that's just the way it is. So if you can't do anything about it, you should either get just get rid of the Human Rights Commission. Just get rid of it. They're doing they're doing nothing, and it's a, a complete it's a facade and doing a disservice to the public, thinking that they have some security, and they don't. So please do something. 
The next speaker is Clayton Smith. Please unmute. I'd like to also add a comment about Diane Feinstein. Diane Feinstein actually is almost a perfect representation of uh, how uh, the government in Washington has become essentially the honeypot on the Potomac. Uh, her, she and her husband, in my opinion, used their position in office to uh, rake in hundreds of millions of dollars and become some of the wealthiest people in this country. And they did this largely on their political connections. And the source of this was his, her husband's taking advantage of her position in the vast outsourcing of America's industrial base to China to reap huge profits at the expense of the American working class. And this for a person in the old Democratic Party who once represented the American working class. She was one of those Clinton-like uh, people that came in, took over the Democrat Party, and basically disenfranchised the working class of America to profit these people, again, who fed at the honeypot on the Potomac. And if anyone could be said to have fed on it, it was Diane Feinstein and her husband. And she was also a supporter of all the evil militarism that we now see the flashbacks of uh, in the Holy Land today. Thank you. Representative Mold Peters, there are no additional speakers in the group. Thank you. We'll move on now then to consent calendar uh, A. And uh, is there anyone who wishes to comment or pull anything? Supervisor Sackett? I would be happy to move consent calendar A, and I will just make a quick comment of the magnitude of services that we are providing to um, our community through this consent calendar in particular um, in health and human services for transitional age youth, peer-run recovery services, and acute psychiatric services. I think this is um, just this particular agenda really shows how much um, the county is doing, so I appreciate that. Great, and I good. I wanted to invite our friends from the Enterprise Resource Center to come now speak. This is the time, uh, and so please do. Thank you, and we also appreciate all the assistance <clears throat> that you guys provide us. We are a peer-run uh, mental health facility or behavioral health. Um, I just wanted to say that we appreciate all the support that we've gotten from the county. We've started collaborating with many of the nonprofits throughout the community. Um, one of the things that's been really great is that we're able to provide um, access to mental health services through our collaboration with access, the access team. And they come in once a week um, and provide, uh, do intakes with people and then also hook them up with all sorts of services. Um, we also are collaborating with NAMI Marin, and we are helping them with all sorts of things as well as they're helping us. We feel like the families of NAMI Marin are a perfect fit because the loved ones that are struggling with mental health challenges come in uh, to the ERC, so it's kind of a perfect system between the two of us, and they support the families. 
We're also providing peer education, which provides equity for folks where people can actually come in and learn how to become a peer support specialist and then get jobs. We have 24 vo uh, volunteers that come in every day, three per shift in the morning and the afternoon. And we uh, require that each one of them takes the peer education course that I actually teach. And um, uh, like I said, people are coming in from that class and starting to volunteer and then oftentimes uh, get hired by us or other organizations. So thank you so much for your consideration today. Thank you. Yes, please. Thank you and good morning and what an honor to be among all of you. Uh, my name is Suzette Hernandez and I wanted to say thanks to my three friends who are pivotal in helping ERC advance to being one of these wonderful places that uh, it's a place for dialogue, it's a place for inspiration, empowerment, it's a place to forget the fact that there's a such thing as a disability, that disability becomes an ability, the inspiration to share and make friends and uh, do good in the community. Um, it's uh, it's it's been very very important to me and and I want to thank all of you and hope that you support and maybe visit visit us sometime I would love that thank you thank you very much any other public comment in the chambers okay I'm not seeing any let's go online I see one hand raised first speaker is Glenn Smith please unmute with regards uh, CA to the moved by the City Council of Mill Valley to move the date of the elections for uh, the city offices to the date of the general election. I think this is in keeping with the uh, Council's apparent desire to dilute the attention of the voters and it promotes, I think, public apathy and reinforces incumbency. And I think this is a, a, an ongoing problem there. And it's symbolized by the fact that they are moved their city council meetings from 6.30, where people who were coming home from work would have a, an opportunity to attend, to 5.30, a time when almost everyone is either on the road or still at work. And so you've noticed that at those council meetings, there's almost no attendance of the general public. They also took the public open time that was available from three minutes down to two minutes, um, demonstrating um, a contempt, I think, for the opinion of the people in the town. And this has happened, and you can see this on many occasions, as people have come to the meetings and asked them to reestablish the three minutes so that the few people that do attend could actually make intelligible comments to the council, which um, currently they're unable to do. So I would wish that you would reconsider this and reject this. I think it's a very bad idea for the city. Peters, there are no additional speakers in the queue. I'll second uh, Supervisor Sackett's motion. Okay, motion by Sackett, second by Rodoni. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Okay, consent A passes. We'll move on to consent B. 
Is there anyone who wishes to pull or comment on those? We'll move consent B. Second. Okay, we have a motion and a second. Let's go to public comment. Is there anyone here in the chambers? I'm not seeing anyone. Anyone online commenting on consent B? Peters, there are no speakers in the queue. Okay, uh, motion by Rice, second by Lucan. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Okay, consent B passes. And that brings us to our next item. And that is a request from the Department of Health and Human Services, Division of Behavioral Health and Recovery Services, and the Marin County Sheriff's Office to receive an update on the one year implementation of medically approved and court ordered medication to incarcerated persons. So, welcome to Sheriff's Office and Behavioral Health. Okay. Okay. Uh, good morning, Supervisors. Uh, my name is Todd Shermer. I'm the Director of Behavioral Health and Recovery Services, which is a division of Health and Human Services. Um, just over a year ago, your board authorized uh, shared res uh, a shared initiative by uh, Health and Human Services and the Sheriff's Office to initiate uh, procedures and implement a procedure for involuntary medications for certain incarcerated people who meet legal and clinical criteria. So we're here just over a year after that authorization to present to you um, an update on how it's going. So I'd like to introduce uh, my colleague, Michelle Funes. She's a Division Director in Behavioral Health and Recovery Services. Todd. Um, I'll be uh, giving the um, update as Todd described um, and referring to the slides. Next slide. So the first uh, slide is a review of the need for involuntary medication. When we uh, presented last year, we uh, talked about the um, uh, reality of people being thank you in the uh, jail who uh, were untreated um, with acute mental health disorders and who lacked the capacity to consent to medication, but we didn't have a mechanism um, to uh, treat them. So they languished in the jail uh, for many months, often waiting to go to the Department of State Hospitals. Um, and um, it was very difficult for everyone working in the jail, uh, the healthcare staff, the custody staff there, to manage them in that state. Next slide. Um, in 2017, the grand jury recommended that we explore options for involuntary medication in the jail. We formed a work group, um, uh, which was cross-disciplinary um, with the sheriff's department, mental health staff, medical staff, um, to look at policies and procedures um, where we might be able to implement this initiative. Next slide. There are several legal pathways to uh, involuntary medication. Um, one is for people who've been found incompetent to stand trial on a felony. Uh, one is for those who've been identified as um, being a danger to themselves, others, or gravely disabled. And the last is for people that have been conserved uh, through um, Code 5357. Next slide. Uh, the process that we um, go through is that um, through one of those legal pathways, uh, the person is found to uh, lack capacity. Uh, medications are prescribed by a psychiatrist or psychiatric nurse practitioner. 
Um, we work closely with the sheriff's department um, in ensuring that we have um, all of the legal documentation that we need, that we have a, a plan um, to safely provide the medication. Um, we monitor, uh, uh, oh, the medication are administered by um, a, med- a health provider, um, a nurse or another licensed healthcare provider. Um, we are, monitor them after the administration of medication and after each um, event we uh, have a debrief where we all talk about how uh, that incident went or event went. Um, we also have a quality um, improvement committee that meets quarterly and reviews um, these cases as well, and we're collecting um, data and looking at outcomes um, for process improvement. Next slide. Um, the benefits of having this program are that we can treat folks who are um, acutely ill, who lack um, you know, insight and, and recognition that they have an illness and that they're in need of treatment. Um, it also results in a safer and calmer jail environment. Um, those with acute um, um, uh, mental illness um, can be very loud at times. They can be up all night screaming, and um, it's very disruptive to the other people that are uh, there. Um, and so treating them um, you know, can, can sort of keep things more peaceful, if you will, um, and uh, um, allows us to um, have a, a better jail environment. So the other thing that's really significant is that while they're waiting to go to the state hospital, if they don't get treated, um, they end up staying in jail longer than um, people who don't have these illnesses, and so um, we're able to move their legal process forward quicker. Next slide. With the board's approval, we started the involuntary medication program in the fall of 2022. Next slide. Um, So how it's going is that we've had no injuries, either to incarcerated individuals or medical or custody staff. Um, The process uh, has, um, as we've um, done these uh, uh, treatment um, episodes that we've gotten, you know, learned each time on small improvements that we can make so things are becoming more efficient. Um, there's always a sergeant overseeing uh, the um, uh, event, and um, this, you know, when we started the conversation about involuntary medication, there was concern that people would feel um, that. Uh, that this was going to maybe lead to injuries or that custody staff um, were going to get hurt. And uh, through exploration of it, we came to see that it's actually safer um, and it's been very supported and valued by everyone who's working in the jail uh, to treat folks instead of leaving them untreated. Next slide. Um, We've successfully stabilized uh, everyone that we have um, treated. Um, We've had people restored to competency, and they could resume their legal process without having to even go to the Department of State Hospitals. Um, We've had fewer than 10 clients um, participate in this program in the last 10 months, Um, and um, all of the clients that we have uh, treated have voluntarily taken medication within one to three um, administrations of involuntary medication. Next slide. Our next steps are our plans to continue our, I mentioned the three legal pathways earlier um, by which people can be treated involuntarily. We have been um, using the incompetent to stand trial pathway. Our plan now um, with the successful rollout of this is to move on to also serve 
uh, those who are at risk themselves, others, or gravely disabled. Um, that's another legal pathway for involuntary medication. Um, and also to serve the uh, public guardian conserved population. So we wanted to start with the incompetence to stand trial uh, population, um, but now that things have been going well, we plan to expand to these other um, populations when they're um, in, in jail. Um, the, another benefit is that when we're able to treat people um, and they're, uh, they stabilize and are able to voluntarily participate in treatment, they become eligible for mental health diversion, um, which is a um, uh, pathway for them to be diverted out of the criminal justice system and into care. Next slide. Is that it? That may be the last one. Yep, that's the last one. Thank you for the presentation. Are there questions from the board? Katie, please. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, I appreciate having this update. Um, uh, my question is, uh, what what are what is staff expecting in terms of um, how many more folks might be receiving IMO um, with the expansion to those who are at risk themselves, or any sort of um, and and also just generally. I don't have a sense of who was currently uh, incarcerated, who was treated over the last year, that the 10 individuals you spoke to, how long they had actually um, been in the jail, but any um, projections on how many folks might be treated in the coming year under, under that, under PC 1369.1, and then what you're projecting in terms of PC 2603, and then also, um, what the thinking is with regards to further expansion under the, the next, those final two bullets, um, WIC 5357 and the mental health. Uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm just curious to the thinking and, and how, um, how it may look different in terms of numbers and also um, as, as a, a treatment path forward, the rationale. Um, yeah, the, the population that we are serving currently, the incompetence to stand trial population, is um, the largest uh, population that we have that are eligible for this. And um, as I said, in the last 10 months, uh, we had less than, fewer than 10. Um, because it's such a small group, we, we are unable to provide specific um, numbers uh, because of HIPAA and protected health information, but it's a really small a small number, and so the, I, while I don't have a, an estimate for those other two populations, they will be even smaller. Um, this was the largest group. Uh, we could go, we could go an entire year and not have one person come into jail, who will fall under the conservatorship. So that'll be really sporadic and, um, you know, small as I said. And the similar is the 2603 um, population. Um, I less than a handful, it'll, it'll, those will be much more rare. Um, and, and so it's difficult to predict how many we might get, but, but a small number. And the rationale is um, that when we do have these folks um, in jail, they are similarly um, or at, at, in acute, um, they're either in an acute state presently, the 2603 population, so our psychiatrist will be the one that identifies them. Um, as meeting criteria for that, and we'll be petitioning the court uh, for the involuntary medication orders. Um, that process uh, 
takes several, it likely will take several months. Um, and so that will, you know, at any point they could voluntarily agree to medication. We're always trying to get voluntary um, treatment. Um, and then the conserved population, they've already been deemed to lack capacity. Um, and so when they come into jail, that's a population that we would identify when they come in the door. Uh, this person is conserved, they lack capacity. And if we don't um, continue their treatment, then they would decompensate. And so that's the, that pathway there. Um, and the rationale for that population. Okay, thank you, I appreciate that. And I was gonna ask about the, to what degree we continue, you continue to pursue voluntary medication and assume that that is always the first uh, and best course of, of action. Absolutely, our protocols have um, multiple repeated offers of voluntary medication up to including the morning of the involuntary medication um, uh, event. We again offer medication um, and we, the next thing that we do is we show them the court order and let them know that, you know, they have been ordered to um, receive medication involuntarily. Um, and sometimes at that point they say, okay, you know, I, I understand and will um, accept medication. Uh, oftentimes that's what happens uh, at, that, at that point. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle and Todd. I appreciate the presentation. Um, and I also appreciate uh, Sheriff Scartina, Lieutenant Barry, and Captain Hale, who sort of walked me through this in the jail to understand um, the bigger picture and actually how it's instituted. It was very insightful. Um, and Supervisor Rice alluded to this about you know, how do you, about your efforts to get voluntary compliance. So you talked a little bit about before and leading up to that um, in involuntary um, medication. What is this technique then after you've given it for future administrations? Because I'm assuming these are medications that have to be administered. Are they daily, weekly? And how do you get that compliance? Yeah, they are um, daily medication uh, at, at present, sometimes twice daily. Um, and so um, we will um, offer, you know, that to them. We have the healthcare, you know, providers go up and offer the medication. Um, if there is an involuntary uh, treat, voluntary administration um, and it's twice daily medication, we will go up in the PM um, medication pass and offer them voluntary medication at that point. Um, if they refuse, um, that kind of gives us a guide as to what might happen the next day. Um, and because we only do involuntary medications um, in the morning. Uh, and so we're, we're kind of constantly, you know, trying working with folks and um, most of the time we either don't even need to do the medication involuntarily. Um, or after one administration, um, they are then able to um, accept medication. So we're, we're regularly visiting with them and seeing them and, and trying to help them understand the importance of treatment. Um, yeah. And then my next question is, and I understand we don't have a very big population, so you may not be able to answer this, but what, so if someone is medicated, what are you seeing as the outcomes? Are, are all those folks transferred to a state hospital? Are they able to get into diversion pr 
programs um, within the community, a residential treatment facility or community services. Can you give us a sense of, of sort of the long-term outcome um, for the person on what happens next? Yeah, sure. Um, since this population, are they're on the waiting list to go to the Department of State Hospitals, and that wait is typically months long. It can be three, four, five, six months, depending on, on um, where, you know, where they are in the, in the wait. Um, when we are able to treat them, as soon as they become eligible for involuntary medication, we are usually able to stabilize them to the, to the point that they are no longer incompetent and not needing to go to the Department of State Hospitals. Um, and so they can you know, be um, deemed restored to competency by the court and then become eligible for mental health diversion or um, if they're interested in that and, and eligible for that, then we um, can pursue that in collaboration um, with their attorney in the court. If they're not interested in that, um, they're eligible for other um, reentry supports that, that we offer. Um, and um, the, big, the, big, the big picture is that their legal process resumes. So when, you're, when they're waiting to go to the state hospital, they're just in a holding pattern. Their cases pause, nothing can proceed. Once they're restored, they can work with their attorney again, um, and their case can go forward in whatever pathway that ends up. Um, but that, that holding pattern that they were in um, ends, which makes their stay shorter generally. So they have to be on the list to go to the state hospital or in that process in order to have an involuntary medication? In, in what we've been doing so far, the population we've been serving so far, yes. Um, uh, the other populations that we're talking about expanding are the conserved and the 2603 um, danger to self, others, or grave disability population. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, based on the successes, it sounds like the program has worked really well. Um, I'm wondering about if you're tracking the individual who volunteers to take medicine prior to even getting into the program, because I think that's part of your success by having the program and wondering if you're tracking that. Well, I mean, that is the vast majority of people that we serve. Um, you know, at any given time, the, uh, the jail mental health team is serving um, 60, 70, 80 people in the Marin County Jail. Um, and, uh, you know, the vast majority of them are accepting treatment voluntarily. Um, for the people that get to the point that we're um, using a court order to treat them, those are people who have repeatedly refused our um, offers of treatment. Um, and uh, who've had many, many, many opportunities to, to work with us. Um, fortunately, you know, you hear less than 10 uh, in that period. It's a really small number. We're able to successfully, you know, uh, reach most of the individuals um, through voluntary engagement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just one follow-up, and actually, so I'm, I'm for those cases, for these for these times when um, staff is at the court, you have the court ordered and or you're making the decision to go ahead with the involuntary treatment. It's not only, I'm sure, traumatic for, I'm sure traumatic for the individual, but for our BHRS staff and our um, sheriff's department as well, the folks there. And I'm just wondering how at the staff level, department level, you all are manage, you know, those 
that that um, the impact it has uh, on you as individuals and as as human beings, fellow human beings, in a situation like that. Um, speaking to our staff, um, those that are involved in these events, um, they're handpicked, and they all have specialized training, and that provides them with tools to help them work through. We have uh, crisis intervention team members um, and um, uh, crisis negotiation team members, and their, their training really kind of helps them balance that, um, that type of event. But the debriefs at the end, um, they, they have a lot of benefit, and we're constantly looking for their mental health and their mental well-being. Um, but the debriefs, we, we learn so much, and everybody gets to speak, and we get to hear from everybody. Um, and I think that uh, it was more uh, traumatic to see people incarcerated and untreated um, for months on end um, and not having any tools to be able to help them. Um, so these were folks that were in you know, dire psychiatric state, um, just really unable to, to meet their basic needs. Um, you know, there were often problems with eating, um, with hygiene, with um, sleep, I, uh, you know, just really unable to, to um, have any stability. And when you see people in that kind of an acute state for months, um, you know, I'm so grateful that we now have an option to treat these, these people. Um, because the way things were before just felt it did not feel um, it did not feel right it did not feel humane uh, to see people in that condition for so long when we had the legal uh, tools that we needed um, and they were only waiting to go to another facility to get that treatment um, when we had the the possibility of treating them here um, so it, it it is hard uh, to see people uh, have to um, receive involuntary treatment but balancing that is that you know that they're going to be on a pathway to um, stability, which feels better than not having that tool. Great. Thank you so much for that, and uh, I totally appreciate the the larger overall environmental benefits having had a tour of the jail as well. And um, thank you very much for that response. I'm glad you asked that question, Supervisor. I was going to do that too, but I did want to follow up and just ask if. If there's any uh, follow-up tracking uh, just of people who have experienced this and have moved on, uh, I know it hasn't been very long. You haven't had very many people. but uh, Yeah, it is a really small number of people, but we are continuing to track um, their process, and we hope over time, over time we'll eventually have a larger group of numbers and um, you know, we'll have a better sense of, of how their situation plays out in terms of their care, their engagement with care post-custody, um, and their, you know, legal process if they are getting into mental health diversion, for example, or some other um, process where we might continue to work with them. That's great. Well, I want to thank you and our Sheriff's Department. I'm aware of one uh, constituent in my district who was languishing uh, in the jail for quite a long time, and his family was quite concerned, and he finally was able to get treatment through your program, move forward with a treatment program. Uh, he's home now, and his family is very happy. Wonderful, so, and I just want to thank you. the sheriff's department. Um, we have a wonderful collaboration with them. Um, it, it, I've uh, worked in a variety of facilities, and I, I just find the sheriff's department to be professional and, and um, you know, show up with us in, in doing this work, and that, that makes all the difference. So thank you. Thank you. We'll move now to public comment, and um, I see one person here in the chambers and a couple online. 
Thank you. I'd, I'd like to recognize that you just heard a presentation from Behavioral Health, and they completely omitted the reality that you had two hanging deaths in the Marin County Jail in 51 days. There should have been an immediate investigation after the first, there was not, and that failure to investigate probably led to the second. Uh, I need to point out that you only have, on average, 245 people in that jail. Uh, Rikers has approximately 6,000 people, Rikers Island, the infamous Rikers Island. They've had nine deaths. It's my understanding that the per-inmate death is vastly higher in the Marin County Jail. And you should be asking why. I don't understand how you can take this presentation seriously when they leave out that vital information. And this is not a slight against the sheriffs. This is not, you know, I mean them no ill will. It's not my desire to offend. But you just had two hanging deaths in 51 days. That's completely unacceptable. This person made no reference to that whatsoever. Um, she said there was no injury. There was no record of injury. We have no way of tracking this. We have no way, they will claim client privacy. There is no way to follow up on any of this. And I would point out that what you have here are paid employees. You do not have the input of the people who are actually put through this program. We heard from you that the family is very happy of this, this constituent of yours, and I appreciate that. But we can't follow up on that either. We're not seeing the patient. And, uh, you know, this is, this jail should never have been constructed in this way. That's not Jamie Scardina's fault. It's a subterranean jail. I don't, there's no way that you can't have people hanging themselves when they're held, you know, in terrible circumstances. Many of these people, before they even were brought in, were brutalized by the police. And we can prove that because we have the evidence of what happened to Paul Ray Smith Jr. So this is Wait. not, it's not acceptable to accept this report without, uh, with Thank no you. questions about We're the hanging deaths. We're at time. Yes, is there other public comment? And then um, we'll I, go online as well. Um, I just want to say that I'm actually one of those people, so I can speak for that. I was a person that was in jail with no insight and couldn't take care of myself and couldn't take medication. And <clears throat> I have always wished that there was a way that somebody had been able to give me medication. I ended up in jail for about a month uh, in psychosis and completely not knowing where I was. And it took me uh, finally saying yes to medication for me to get better. I did end up in STAR and taking care of myself, and now I'm an operations manager. But I have to say that I actually think that, that this is a great idea as a person that's actually been one of those um, people in jail, so. Thank you for your comment. Uh, Sheriff, may I go online first and then take your comments? Okay, very good, thank you. We'll go online, we have two hands up. Current speaker is Glenn Smith, please unmute. Yeah, I, I think that it's important. I, I once uh, was a manager of a psychiatric uh, halfway house in San Rafael and administered lots of these pharmacology, pharm these drugs uh, to uh, people that were there. 
And uh, the word stabilize that you use uh, can often be also uh, zombified because many of these people were on drugs that uh, basically uh, made them kind of like zombies, almost numb. And so I'm very concerned about the drugs that are being used. Uh, psychiatric uh, drugs have often lifetime effects on the people who receive them. And um, some of these lifetime effects are often discounted by the medical profession in their eager uh, desire to have an immediate solution to an immediate problem. And so I'm curious as to what the drugs are you're using and who's doing the selecting of those drugs. Also, given the rise of uh, what I think in the future is going to be increasing number of people who will be arrested essentially for political crimes, as we've seen with the J6 people in D.C., the use of uh, uh, psychiatric drugs on people against their will with false diagnoses, and is there some kind of independent uh, advocacy somewhere in the uh, administration of this program so that people who are resisting uh, for reasons that are rational uh, are respected in their uh, and, and have someone outside the jail to provide advocacy for them. Thank you. The next speaker is Johnson Reynolds. Please unmute. Yeah, uh, Johnson Reynolds. Uh, here in Marin and live in the Canal, but yeah, I was concerned about uh, this not being administering drugs like we do in, uh, in uh, I guess, uh, what do you call it, uh, homes uh, for, uh, uh, for people that uh, are elder homes, that kind of thing, and just stabilizing, just uh, keeping them calm. Uh, I, it sounds like you're, you're looking at all the options, look, looking at giving the drugs voluntarily, looking at actually interacting with the person in the jail in a way that can calm them down and uh, be, uh, be reasonable to talk to and, and relate to. And that's fine, but I'm, I'm just concerned with the others that, uh, that you don't uh, just go ahead with involuntary right away. And it sounds like you're not doing that, so I appreciate that, and uh, the staff uh, taking the actions to hold them, maybe, and <laughs> uh, give them shots to, to start the involuntarily. I appreciate the, the witness of one person who said that it was very helpful to get uh, drugs administered to her and, and calm her down and to get her in a, in a new track. So if, if that's an example, I appreciate what you're doing with this, but uh, getting somebody calmed down first and then being able to uh, uh, work with them uh, later and give them voluntary medication afterwards would be helpful. So do all that you can on that score as well. Thank you. The next speaker is Rodrigo Izquierdo. Please unmute. With the homeless population, one-fourth of the people have mental problems. Now, from what I've been hearing right now, 
is can you break that down as to permanently having a problem where they cannot accept, say, help, assistance, uh, a room, medication, can't take care of themselves, or they uh, simply, simply, uh, well, they wound up as uh, incarcerated for uh, other reasons, hopefully it's not for stealing bread, something out of La Miserable, but I just wondering if you you could break it down as to what type of me mental illness are we talking about? Uh, it would be a benefit to um, people, street people, homeless people, to actually be incarcerated because then they would ha actually have a chance uh, being institutionalized and being taken care of. See, so in a way, what is the proportion of people that are in jail? Are they um, mentally ill? Are they just uh, uh, just uh, temporarily uh, ill and they just need their medication, they couldn't afford them? Or for whatever reason, they just can't take it because they simply don't have their, their resources anymore. So can, can you be more specific as to when you say mental illness, what are we talking about? Uh, uh, permanently brain damage, uh, you know, burnout from drugs that they can't reason anymore? Please break it down. Thank you. President Ronald Peters, there are no additional speakers in the queue. Okay, I'm going to bring it back to staff and let our sheriff have an opportunity to speak as well as our other staff members. Please. Good morning, board. Jamie Scardino with the Sheriff's Office. I just want to take a moment to thank uh, Todd and Michelle, not only for their presentation this morning, but for their partnership. Uh, as it was mentioned, back in 2017, the grand jury uh, came back with a recommendation uh, for this process. And uh, there's been uh, many years of brainstorming to get to where we are today. Uh, and it's not for the partnership and the leadership uh, with the Sheriff's Office and Health and Human Services. Uh, so thank you for that. I also want to thank uh, our jail commander, Captain Mark Hale, uh, Lieutenant Barry, and all of our jail staff who put together uh, policies and procedures uh, to ensure the safety of our staff, uh, the safety of uh, our nurses and mental health clinicians who come into our jail, um, and also uh, the safety of uh, those who are incarcerated who are receiving uh, these IMO orders. So uh, thank you to, to all of you. Uh, and lastly, I wanna say uh, one, one more thank you. Um, it does not go unnoticed uh, every single day for our Sheriff's Office staff and our Health and Human Services staff who show up every single day and save lives in our Marine County Jail. So thank you for the great work you do. I wanna invite uh, our speakers. Is there anything you would like to add or respond to public comment at all? Okay, all right, very good. Thank you for the report. Appreciate your coming back. <coughs> I'll entertain a motion to receive the report. So I move to receive the report. Second. Okay. Uh, motion uh, Radoni, second by Sackett. Any public comment? Seeing none, all in favor? Aye. Aye. Thank you. Thank you for the report. We'll move now to agenda item number six. This is a six month update on the Office of Emergency Management within the Marin County Fire Department. Welcome, Mr. Torrance. Good morning, board. Uh, good to be with you this morning. Thank you very much for having us. Um, first, I just want to uh, extend my thanks to everyone that was a part of this transition. Uh, of course, to the board, 
uh, to County Administrator Heimel, um, Fire Chief uh, Jason Weber, and then also uh, Chief, uh, excuse me, uh, Sheriff Scardina, uh, who is here as well, who is pivotal in this, this transition for the Office of Emergency Management. Um, as this was a collaboration between multiple departments for us to get to this point. Um, so just for today, we just will be going over a couple of bullet points to highlight some of the, uh, the great work that has happened over the last six months. Um, but I do want to spend some time this morning just to give you a highlight of uh, where we are and where we are going. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, so with uh, the Office of Emergency Management over the last six months, I do want to highlight some of the roles and responsibilities briefly. Um, where we started back in 2022 with this reorganization and restructuring, and then over the next two years, uh, what are some of our strategic plans that we look to be putting in place, and then also some of the achievements that we've already had, which I'd be happy to share uh, with everyone this, after, uh, this morning. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, so just going over a little bit for uh, members of the public who may not be aware, um, the Office of Emergency Management has a very extensive uh, a role, a, a extensive list of roles and responsibilities, uh, many that are mostly seen during emergencies uh, but are ongoing to, uh, behind the scenes. Uh, there is an extensive list, I will not cover it all, but uh, for the most part, alert and warning, uh, disaster response and recovery, uh, mitigation, but also being able to bring in a lot of the grants uh, for not only for our, ag our agency, but the cities and towns within the Marin County uh, jurisdiction as well. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, so uh, last year in uh, June of 2022, uh, uh, your board took, uh, took to consideration an organizational assessment of the Office of Emergency Services at the time. Um, within that report that was brought to your, uh, to your board for consideration, there were 24 recommendations uh, that were proposed. And within that, uh, a new uh, staffing model and organizational structure was proposed. Um, additionally to that, uh, increased collaboration and then additional training for the staff that were within the office. Um, a lot of the gaps that were identified by the consulting firm uh, did uh, highlight some of the operational gaps that we had, uh, but also did, uh, they proposed a very, uh, various solutions that we were able to put in place. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, so with that, just to highlight some of the, the top re, uh, recommendations for the restructuring, uh, we, uh, and some of these actually started prior to the office actually going into place in January of this year, uh, but essentially looking at some of the county codes that needed to be uh, modernized, uh, looking at some of the planning that needed to be re restructured, uh, additional staff and training and exercises, uh, also looking at how we do public outreach, uh, working with members of the public. Um, Additionally, also uh, requiring staff to be trained in alert and warning so we can expand the, the level of uh, staff that have tr uh, the capability to send out emergency alerts uh, to members of the public, but also how do we work with our county staff to make sure that everyone is ready to respond to the emergency operations center in the event that we have an emergency. And then some of those are working with human resources to get us uh, to where we need to be as an organization. Uh, a couple of other things is looking at the uh, emergency operations center's readiness and then also how we, uh, how we distribute grants uh, to the members of our um, operational area, which are cities and towns and special districts, but also to members of the public post-disaster and how we actually deploy uh, individual assistance that comes from the state and federal governments, but also public assistance, uh, which helps us rebuild our roads and recover uh, disaster dollars um, in the event that we do have a large-scale uh, um, large uh, emergency. Next slide, please. 
So uh, this year uh, we took on, we undertook a very uh, quick but also important uh, moment for us to look at our strategic planning, uh, to really look at how we are going to respond to this. Um, and we came up with a theme of grit, being able to start grounding and um, getting us to a point where we can do uh, resistance and then also innovation and trust. And we look at that as an opportunity for us to, uh, as, a, as a county organization, work with members of the public, uh, but also look at the new and emerging threats that are coming uh, to the county. We see that climate change is a, is a big thing that we are facing, and we also look at equity and also how we work with multiple agencies. And a lot of that uh, required us to do a reset and start uh, grounding ourselves in a way that we can establish trust not only within this organization, but within uh, the organizations that we work with day in and day out. Um, one of the other things that we looked at was actually um, focusing on people-centric emergency management. Um, how do we respond to the community uh, during, before, during, and after an emergency? And that was one of the things that we, we wanted to focus on because we realized that emergencies affect the members of our public the most. And so we can look at the hazard specifically, but if we can realize that we're gonna be focusing on the members of each community, uh, we can better serve the members of our public uh, during, uh, before, during, and after those emergencies. Uh, this also allows for us to collaborate with new, with new partners and new agencies, nonprofit and government partner agencies because it's a shared response. Um, and we're being able to look at that as an opportunity to in, in increase our capacity but also be innovative and, uh, and continue to advance our organization. Uh, next slide, please. So there's three areas of focus that we have. Um, I'll highlight a, um, a couple of them uh, shortly. Uh, equity is one of the big things. So as I mentioned, disasters are about the people. So how can we continue to learn about our uh, members of our public? Uh, to me, this means getting out of our offices, going out and doing more community events, listening to the public, um, getting out and all, uh, working with our coordinators to make sure that they have the capacity to understand what are the challenges that people see before, during, and after an emergency. Uh, and also working with our operational area partners uh, to make sure that they, they know that we have uh, the skill set to be able to work with the community, uh, but looking at inclusion, diversity, equity, and access uh, to make sure that we have a, a full range of uh, information that are coming in. Uh, to our office to help us serve uh, our underserved and underrepresented communities. Uh, next slide, please. Additionally, the coordination is, a, is critical to us. We cannot do it alone, uh, working with all of the departments and jurisdictions. Um, myself, I've been able to go out and meet with many of the city and town managers, the fire chiefs throughout the, throughout the community, the police chiefs as well, just to get an understanding of what are our needs for the community. Uh, we've had a lot of great uh, back and forth dialogue with the community, um, and with that, we've been able to make some changes to our office to make sure our coordination is strong uh, with all of the uh, different the, uh, the different divisions that we work with. Um, and to that, we have actually started a new um, operational area training where we make space for training every single month for the operational area partners. Uh, and with that, we've been able to get, uh, we're on month three right now, I've been able to get 50 plus uh, participants from every or from the jurisdictions throughout the county to really make sure that they know that there's an opportunity for us to collaborate and share information um, and that we are hosting those monthly with our partner agencies. Uh, next slide, please. And so uh, looking at the capacity building, and I, I do want to highlight this uh, for, for the board, uh, with the changes that we were able to implement at your approval, 
uh, looking at the 24-7 the duty officer where we, can, where we will be launching a program that will have a person that's on standby 24-7 uh, to be able to send out emergency alerts. And that's going to be a rotated through our staff to make sure that even if it is 2 o'clock in the morning, there is an emergency alert that can notify our residents. And all of our staff are going to have the training and expertise to be able to send out those critical alerts if, uh, in the event that, are, that it is needed. Um, additionally, with the appropriations that you have made uh, to the Office of Emergency Management and the Fire Department, uh, we've been able to reappropriate um, $330,000 worth of grants just in six months uh, to enhance our level of emergency uh, response capacity. So that looks like uh, um, highlighting what we can do within our emergency operations center to make, make sure it's been modernized, uh, looking at some of our resources that we have, so care and shelter supplies with the support of Health and Human Services. Um, all of these resources are now available to our staff, uh, and we're consistently going to be able to update the emergency operations center so it is ready um, and remains ready uh, with this advancement, and also we can re reutilize these grants. Um, there is a new warehouse that is coming online in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we're actually starting to move stuff in soon, um, and that's going to be down in the Novato area. Uh, but that allows for resources to be here in the county, so there is no delay in actually being able to stand up some of these emergency uh, response services that we do need. Um, next slide, please. So one of the things that uh, we did have happen uh, over the last couple of months is the staffing model has significantly changed. Um, the new uh, positions that you see here, uh, we were actually able to, um, there's two that are highlighted and one actually was actually um, on the consent today uh, for approval. Um, so you did approve uh, the bottom one, which is an emergency preparedness coordinator. Uh, we will start the recruitment for that um, as soon as possible. Uh, but also the disaster mitigation analyst, we actually did hire that position as well. Uh, so that's going to take us to about, uh, that's going to take us to nine people that are now going to be a part of the Office of Emergency Management. Um, uh, some of those positions um, are carried over, but also uh, being able to expand. And I do want to acknowledge the staff that are out here, uh, some of our new employees and also so some of our carryover employees um, who are vital to the implementation of this. Uh, we have two new coordinators that are joining us today. Um, and then we have our PIO and our data manager uh, who are not here, but uh, they are vital to the implementation of this project. Um, so we def definitely do have a very strong uh, model that uh, we can say is here today to be able to support the members of this community. Uh, next slide, please. So some of the achievements that we have been able to have, out of those 24 recommendations, I would like to share that 19 of them are completed or, and or are in progress. And in progress uh, doesn't mean we just got started on it. It means that we're actually moving very quick on those. Um, so that allows for us to, allow, um, to be able to move uh, in a positive direction. Uh, but at the same time, we actually have um, a few things that we've been having going on concurrently with these. So, uh, responding to the uh, Redwood uh, uh, mudslide incident was something that we did at the same time. Uh, being able to uh, continue to do the uh, county's multi-jurisdictional hazard mitigation plan, which will be coming to you uh, very shortly, but also being able to build out the capacity uh, by hearing from the members of the public. Um, and some of those highlights include relaunching a new Alert Marin website, which is more accessible and equitably designed. Uh, but also making sure that we're hearing from our partners uh, to implement some of these changes that they are looking at. Um, we've assigned an emergency management coordinator to pretty much every uh, special district in the county and city. 
uh, and they will be working with those jurisdictions to make sure that we have con uh, routine connections with them, but also making sure that we have multi-jurisdictional working groups available for every um, for all of our cities and towns to make sure that we can uh, collaborate on addressing alert and warning, sheltering, uh, disaster recovery, and mitigation in an ongoing fashion. Uh, next slide, please. So with that, um, there are a couple of uh, strategic planning areas that we will continue to focus on. Uh, situational awareness and emergency operations center um, uh, readiness are some of the things that we are going to continue to elevate along with prevention, mitigation, and training for the staff and the city um, and the um, residents uh, within our uh, county. But we also want to make sure our organization is consistently prepared, and that's what we will be doing over the next two years. Um, so with that, I think the next slide may be our final slide. Uh, so next steps, um, our goal is to be able to bring this strategic plan back to you with some metrics behind it to show what we are actually doing and actually how it is um, improving the readiness of the county. Uh, we are going to continue to uh, meet with our local partners and city town managers uh, along with our police chiefs and fire chiefs to make sure that what we are putting forward uh, is in alignment with their jurisdictions as well. And then also uh, a people-centric way of actually moving forward with all of our countywide plans to make sure that they um, are elevating what we can be doing for the most part for our residents, not just what we want to do as the county, but making sure that those plans work for the people that we are serving. Um, so with that, um, I think the next couple of steps uh, will be uh, very, we'll be able to highlight those uh, hopefully uh, soon for you. Uh, but we definitely want to say thank you to uh, to your board for uh, for supporting the emergency management, and also thank you to the the staff that uh, have been working with me um, to so allow for us to actually implement this on on your behalf. So thank you very much, and I'll be here for questions. Thank you, Steve. Are there questions from the board, Supervisor Doney? Um, thank you, Steve, for the update and report. You know, I think the board um, originally handed the report to you and hired you and it depended on you and the chief to put this package together and I'm really personally very pleased at the progress you've made so I want to thank you for that looking at your organizational chart and I want to welcome staff being here too because we often don't get to see you so I'm glad you're here um, looking at your organizational chart is that sort of the build out now or are you anticipating other positions you're going to need so right now, w with the two positions that are highlighted in red, the disaster analyst and then the emergency preparedness coordinator, um, we we're actually feel like we're going to be in a pos better position um, and probably will come back with an analysis to see if this is something that works. Um, right now, I, I want to make sure that we have an opportunity to assess and make sure that uh, it's a good structure prior to coming back with any recommendations. But uh, for now, it does seem to be uh, a solid or a solid list of recommendations for us. Great. Thank you. And then referring to your metrics that you're going to be using, do you have an example of that, of what sort of metrics we might be seeing? Yes. So part of our strategic plan, we actually have about, we have 10 different, sec, uh, 10 different objectives, um, and we actually just started these meetings to be able to go through. So we want to be able to, uh, for instance, with alert and warning, uh, we want to be able to highlight how quick we can actually get an alert out. So uh, previously, we can show how long it's taken for us to have a notification come from the dispatch center into the Office of Emergency Management, um, and then also what is that time frame for getting out an alert, uh, whether it be a text message or phone call or a wireless emergency alert. So we want to be able to use something like that to show that the training that we've implemented is actually working uh, to say, can we get out an alert within five minutes of notification from 
um, from the dispatch center or from the incident commander. Um, we think that that's a good way to be able to start doing that. Um, and that'll be one of the many things that we'll be highlighting, but um, our team is working uh, to figure out different ways of metrics for, for various uh, objectives. Stephen, can you explain what you mean by operational area? Yes, thank you for that. Um, so we do have a, the, the state designates the county uh, jurisdictional-wise as the operational area coordinator. Um, and our role through the Office of Emergency Management requires us to serve as a liaison between the cities and towns and special districts and the state. And so with that, during, an emer during and before an emergency, uh, we have to coordinate not only personnel, uh, but also training and uh, disaster recovery resources on behalf of all agencies in the county. Uh, so we wanna make sure that before we go to the state and federal government for resources, that we try to locally source resources here in the county and our Office of Emergency Management helps move resources around from city to city, but also within the unincorporated areas. Um, and if in the event that we do not have access to those uh, resources, then we are required to go to the state and serve um, as that coordinator for, the, um, for mutual aid. Uh, th thank you, Stephen. Really appreciate the presentation you spoke about. Uh, the importance of getting out in the community as well and educating the public. I know the Friday after next, the Marine Communications Forum, yourself and a lot of your team will be uh, giving an update. Do you want to maybe just give a quick plug for that? I know Michelle Fidelli is here as well. Maybe she'll do that during public comment, but great opportunity for the public to be aware of. Yes, uh, so we do actually have a Mar uh, Marin County Emergency Preparedness. We're partnering with First Five uh, to make sure that we can get out and actually share this information with members of the community that we might not have con uh, connections with. So uh, it will be on uh, Friday, October 20th, uh, hosted just locally here at the Embassy Suites Hotel. Um, there will be a, a, a Marin Voice article that also highlights this uh, going out soon. Um, to make sure that we can get as many people involved with this. Um, we're hoping to see about 200 people, um, and OEM will be uh, actually spearheading a lot of this with the support of First Five, uh, where we'll actually be uh, hearing from Supervisor Lucan, myself, uh, and uh, two of our coordinators, and we'll be highlighting how emergency preparedness is critical for our, our, uh, the youngest members of our community, uh, which typically a lot of people might go and grab a, co a go kit and they think that that's good enough, but it doesn't work for um, our infants and toddlers in the community and we wanna highlight how they can be better prepared. So thank you. Yes, yeah, Stephen, thank you. I really appreciate the update and, and all, the, all that you've accomplished uh, to date and the, and the department. Um, I especially appreciate uh, the emphasis that you're making on creating and building relationships and trust with various agency partners, uh, as well as communities and organizations and the public in general. I think that's just really critically important. Um, I have a question about um, Alert Marin. Given our reliance on Alert Marin, and I um, very, I think it's great, um, really, that cross training you're doing and making sure we have this 24/7 capacity to be doing sending alerts. But it's my understanding we have a, I don't know if it's a low subscription rate relative to other communities, but it certainly isn't everyone signed up for Alert Marin. And I'm just wondering um, what the work is or the plan is to um, up that subscription level because I think it's, uh, I wish we could mandate it. I wish it was uh, a default, um, but I, I think it's absolutely critical. 
Yeah, so we've actually been working with our vendor to try to get down to the, the percentage of Marin, uh, Marin residents that are opted into the system. We've gotten close to it. We think it's about 65%. Um, and actually, we, what, what we've been actually hearing is that this is actually a high number in comparison to a lot of other counties. Um, in talking with our customer support manager who works for our vendor Everbridge, um, she was actually surprised to hear that we had 65%. Uh, she thought that was actually very high in comparison. Uh, so, but we don't think that's the end of it. We wanna be able to do a push. So we're actually working with a couple of our partner agencies with um, Marin Wildfire Prevention Authority, Fire Safe Marin to figure out how we can collectively push a, a couple of new campaigns over the next couple of months. Um, this is gonna come with some of the new, uh, new rebranding re and also of the, the website, but also of the logo. Um, and then also we're gonna be doing a, a countywide test that we're uh, planning for March, 2024. Um, so with that, we hope to have that push uh, done, which will hope, hopefully enhance the number of subscriptions uh, for that. Um, I do wanna make a caveat, but uh, with the subscriptions that we have, those are for the opt-in notification. Mm -hmm. the, um, the number of uh, residents that are actually in our database, um, we can actually send an emergency notification, which most people refer to as a reverse 911, uh, which will hit most landlines throughout the county as well. So um, there are a lot of areas where we can send out these emergency notifications to those that are opted in, but in the event that we have an evacuation, um, I'm fairly confident that we will get in contact with nearly all of our residents and members of the community who are not um, either, who are here as visitors or business owners. Okay, great, and I was actually gonna ask that question around those, you know, however many tens of thousands who are here during the day who don't live here, are they registered as well for Alert Marin? Are they included in that sort of larger population that we wanna make sure um, is, is receiving an alert and they th those folks those folks that are community and working here of course would be contacted by cell phone so um, I really um, glad you have a, a plan and actually uh, uh, pushing towards that date in March to actually do a test which is a great uh, sort of deadline and and target to shoot for in terms of broadening a subscription rate so good to hear thank you very much great report Stephen thank you and for all you've accomplished with your whole team I, I have a question and a request, really, and this is uh, just going forward, uh, how do you plan to perhaps share the results of a debrief that you would do on an incident with supervisors? There's a, an interest the community certainly has in what happened in the district that may have caused a, a major uh, event, and then what are we gonna do about it going forward? And so I would just say that's an interest of mine and I know my constituents. And so if there's a way to build in after you do your debrief, uh, you know, what do you see? I'll turn it in question. What do you see as ways to bring the soups in after you've done your debrief? Yes, so internally we do have mechanisms for our after action reports which allow for us to see what has worked, uh, what needs improvement, and so those are things that we do have in place uh, with our partner agencies depending on the type of incident uh, to make sure we uh, get that feedback and implement an imp uh, improvement strategy. Uh, as far as imp uh, involving the supervisors, uh, legally as far as a, a local emergency proclamation, uh, we do have to bring that to you to close that out so you can understand what happened, what, uh, what 
what costs were um, provided, but also use that as an opportunity to come to the board and show what we did uh, to respond to a local emergency. So uh, there are various opportunities where we can come to the board and present that in detail. Uh, additionally, in the, if there is no local, local emergency and it is a significant event, um, I'm happy to work with staff to be able to bring that to you so you can have the debrief. Uh, not everything rises to a level of a local emergency, but it, it is uh, something that may be of importance to you. That, that would be great, Stephen. And the situation that is very common in Southern Marin in the winter is the classic heavy rainstorm meets high tide uh, in, in, the, uh, in the river estuaries, and, and, and the highways are flooded and people can't go anywhere, and that happens fairly routinely. And so just trying to understand, you know, what have we done with the multi-agencies, Caltrans and everybody else. Uh, it's great to give some comfort to folks later that we're out there doing what we need to do. Yes, happy to bring that to you. Thank you. Great. Okay, let's move to public comment. Is there anyone in the chambers who would like to comment? Okay, great. Good morning, Supervisors. Michelle Fidelli from First Five Marin. Good to see you all. Um, I think uh, Supervisor Lucan and Mr. Torrance covered it well, but just to reiterate, there will be a free forum on emergency preparedness on Friday, October 20th at the Embassy Suites Hotel in San Rafael, 9.30 a.m. to noon, and it's free. Um, we invite uh, anyone who is interested in learning more about com uh, community preparedness, neighborhood preparedness um, to join us. And if you want more information, you can give me a call, uh, 415 Two five seven eight five five five. That's at First Five Marin. Thank you. Thank you. Seeing no other commenters in the chambers, we'll go online. Current speaker is Clayton Smith. Please unmute. Looking at the report, the one deficiency that I think stands out is I didn't see any mention of the National Park Service, uh, particularly uh, where. I live, we're surrounded by the GGNRA and um, the um, terrain through which uh, people would have to uh, leave my area uh, could very easily be engulfed in flames uh, and fed by an immense amount of undergrowth that has occurred uh, along the roadside in uh, Tennessee Valley. Uh, the second thing is the, um, the fact that the sirens that uh, work in Mill Valley do not, they're inaudible in Tam Valley. And so I would suggest that sirens would be available in Tam Valley specifically uh, because relying entirely on a cell phone um, kind of system of notification um, if electricity were interrupted, we are going to uh, lose our cell phone connections because they're all dependent on um, electrified cell towers. And the other thing is the condition of the road on Flamingo Drive, the half of it from the bridge back to Marin Drive is very, very rough and, uh, and I think would impede the flow of traffic because that is going to be the main evacuation route for probably uh, three or 4,000 people who live up Marin Drive. 
are going to end up having to use that as the exit. And that road is in very poor condition. I hope you think about that too. Thanks. The next speaker is Rodrigo Izquierdo. Please unmute. Hi. As a retired San Francisco Fire Department, 40 years captain, I want to just tell you that um, uh, if people panic and you got to make it as simple as possible, you everything, nothing's going to be academic. They're not going to find the map that the county sent out to all the residents on evacuation routes. They're just going to get in their car and head on out, out of the hills. And the hills are the ones that funnels fires. They just become uncontrollable. So there should be, you should be studying Lahaina, Maui, Hawaii, Paradise, Oakland Hills fires. Forget about the, the Lone Prieta. That's, they had a lot of routes there. You got to study it and, and got to see what uh, people could do. And what, what I've seen for Mill Valley, which probably pertains to all the, the rest of the places, is that you got a lot of um, obstacles on the roads. You have uh, acacia trees that are just going to take off like crazy for Oakland. It was the, God, the other fire tree. Uh, can't think of it right now, but you're going to have this problem where you have a lot of obstacles to the road and you've got to have a clear two car lane because one of them is without question going to get stuck. And so you're, you're dealing with the county and you're dealing with people who love their trees and their, and their decks and everything. And they're just going to fight you, but you're going to have to, uh, do something about it, deal with it, because uh, you're going to have casualties. Thank you. Question among speakers, there are no additional speakers in the queue. All right. Thank you to all our public commenters. Thank you, Stephen, for your report. Chief, for your support. We'll see you again. Thank you. <clears throat> I'll move we receive the presentation. Second. Okay. Any public comment? All in favor? Aye. 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 All right, item number seven, Parks Department. Good morning, Supervisors. Uh, Max Corton, Director of Marin County Parks. And uh, this is very exciting to be able to present this this morning. So as you remember, uh, gosh, over a year ago when we were first uh, developing uh, the new uh, funding areas for the renewed version of Measure A, there was a lot of interest in a wider variety of uh, types of sustainable ag programs, uh, community gardens, ways to connect or, or focus on equity with agriculture. And so um, part of that program is 30% of the 20% that goes to ag from Measure A is this broad bucket of, of grant funding to community organizations. And so once Measure A was passed, we started developing what that program would look like. And I just want to start by appreciating Kevin Wright from our team who took the lead first off. And I also really want to appreciate 
David Lewis and Stefan Parnay back there. You know, our whole team is, we're, uh, we're focused on parks. We don't necessarily know everything about agriculture. And so having really two accomplished leaders from the county to advise us and partner with us was really critical. And lastly, I want to introduce Sonia Hammonds, uh, who joined our team to take the lead on this program and jumped right in and has been leading amazing uh, working group discussions and connecting with different people and groups to build this program. And so I'm going to turn it over to her. Good morning, President Milton Peters and board. Um, we're excited to present this new program to you. Next slide, please. As Max mentioned, um, when voters re-implemented Measure A last year, one of the changes was to establish this new program. And we expect this program to generate uh, approximately $800,000 per year to invest in community food system and sustainable agriculture projects. Next slide, please. Um, this list of program areas is directly from the ordinance. And the diverse range of topics that the program covers expands opportunities for Measure A to support projects throughout all of Marin's geographies in urban areas, rural areas, and connections between our communities. Next slide, please. To prepare for the new program, we spent over a year doing a lot of listening so that community priorities and perspectives would shape the program. And we're grateful to our work group partners who generously shared expertise in public health, agricultural production, food systems policy, environmental conserva conservation, and representation from the Parks and Open Space Commission. And we also collaborated with others, such as the Office of Equity, Community Development Agency, and networks of community-based organizations throughout the county. Next slide, please. This listening process, as well as the uh, race equity budget tool, shaped how to incorporate equity considerations into the program design. The program emphasizes investment in priority communities and invites applicants to use data to show how their project will impact uh, race equity and intersecting challenges. And we're also coordinating with other funders, such as Marin Community Foundation and others, to stay up to date as their funding priorities evolve so that we can leverage these local funds in a flexible way to fill gaps in the funding landscape. Next slide, please. As for what's next, pending your board's approval, we will open the application period. And one theme that stakeholders identified is that to foster equitable access to the funds that smaller organizations would need support in the application process. And so we've already begun technical assistance workshops to support applicants. We have over 60 participants registered so far, and we'll continue this support throughout the application process as well as throughout the whole grant cycle. Um, after staff analysis of applications, the Parks and Open Space Commission will make recommendations to your board about grant awards, and we expect to present proposed grant agreements to your board around May 2024, um, and following fi finalization of these grant agreements, we will reflect on how year one went and continue to improve for the following years. Next slide, please. And we appreciate your board's consideration of the program guidelines to launch the new program. Thank you. Thank you. Questions? 
Sonia, thank you so much for the presentation. I was wondering if you could tell me how you define priority communities. And then there's a second buzzword here. I think it's about um, disadvantaged communities or, anyway, how, how would you define priority communities? Because we use a variety of things to do that. So thank you. Yes, thank you for that. For this program, we're using the term priority communities uh, to invite um, applicants to use data to define their story of the race equity and intersecting challenges that their project would address. The reason we're doing this is that, um, as you said, there's a lot of terms used, and in state grant programs, whether discussing disadvantaged communities or underserved communities, they use various maps and metrics, and a lot of Marin County communities end up getting lost in that map and not specifically covered. And for this program that addresses so many topics, we do want to consider race in line with the um, county policy using the race equity budget tool. And at the same time, when we look at intersecting challenges and we look at uh, factors such as school poverty, the ratio of students in a school um, eligible for free lunch programs, for example, some of those schools are in wealthy areas, but their students are coming from other areas. So we want to be flexible enough to adapt to that story. There are also cases where um, there's less access to affordable food in grocery stores, and that's something we want to be able to cover as well. So for that reason, we invite applicants um, and provide a range of data sources from them to choose from, as well as lived experience to share why, in their opinion, they should be a priority from an equity perspective. Great. And a second question would be uh, evaluation of the program. Since it's a new program, are you going to do that every year, every couple years? What's the plan? Yeah, thank you for that. Because it's a new program, we are still in a learning process. Um, we are grateful to collaborate with our group work group and in particular the UC Cooperative Extension team, which has a lot of experience in research ev and evaluation. Um, at this point, we have uh, so much to look forward to in terms of um, learning what kinds of projects will be coming in and how many applicants there will be. And so because there would be different forms of evaluation for different kinds of projects, we'll be looking at comes, what comes in and moving forward for, from there. But it is on our mind. Thank you. Uh, and maybe this is to uh, Max. I'm not sure, but can you tell me, tell us how this intersects or overlaps with, or doesn't overlap with the Respira grants? Yeah, great question. And and so as as this new version of Measure A is rolled out, right, we have more grant programs than we originally did in the first version. So. The Breathe Respira grants are focused on, um, and they're, those are, come from the 65% of Measure A that comes to Marin County Parks and Open Space. And that program started with the very beginning of Measure A, and it's really focused on funding community organizations to provide access and programming for underserved communities to, to access and, and participate in parks. And so, it's really a park-focused program to connect parks with people who otherwise might have challenges connecting with them. This program is in our, our, our agro sustainable agriculture part of Measure A, and it's really focused on a broad variety of different ways for people to connect with food and agriculture. And so, whereas one's focused on, on parks, this one's focused on food and agriculture. 
the other piece of this is that it's, it can fund a much broader array of ways to accomplish that, right? It could be purchasing equipment, it could be funding positions, it could be programs, projects. It's, it's really a, a very broad variety. Uh, open to public comment. Not seeing anyone in the chambers. Is there anyone online? Yes, oh. our speaker is Glenn Smith. Please unmute. Yep. Okay. In looking at this, I asked myself, where are the cows and chickens, the fish and the oysters? When um, I and most people think of ag and marin, we're thinking about, not about produce, but about meat and dairy and, and also, of course, eggs, great eggs from the Casa Valley. It's this more predictive programming to eliminate meat and dairy from our diets, and with it, the ranches in West Marin. This would be in concert with the agenda of the globalist elites at the World Economic Forum, the Davos crowd. Another issue is why do we continue to use the word sustainable? rather than regenerative, regenerative agriculture, regenerative land use, which is something I think is much more appropriate to focus on. Uh, and I would emphasize some, and I would hope that the people thinking about this would um, visit the uh, webpage from the Savary Institute, a uh, South African Rhodesian uh, individual who has actually studied how to make ranch lands um, ecologically regenerative. And also there's going to be a seminar on regenerative arc agriculture uh, held in San Jose uh, on the 28th, Saturday the 28th, uh, featuring Vendantha Shiva, a woman from India who's actually working to save the small farms in India from um, either elimination, elimination or, or uh, corporatization and therefore from essential extinction. Hope you had a chance to think about it and attend. President Mullen Peters, there are no additional speakers in the queue. Okay, thank you. We'll bring it back to the chambers. And Stefan, if you'd like to speak, you and David. Uh, good morning, Supervisor Mullen Peters and members of the board. My name is Stefan Parnay. I serve as the Agricultural Commissioner uh, for Mern County. Uh, how fortunate we are to have uh, Sonia Hammonds with Parks leading this amazing effort on, on this uh, grant program. Uh, and then not to mention the outstanding work of Kevin Wright as well as, as Max and uh, Chris and, and the rest of his team. Um, this grant program is such an incredible opportunity to support school and community gardens connect kids uh, where our food comes from, um, especially in underserved communities. And there's something incredibly special about watching kids get their hands dirty in, a, in, in the soil, uh, in a garden, and then to watch their expressions when seeds miraculously sprout from the soil. It's, it's pretty cool. Um, this could, that could be a pivotal moment in their life when they want to become an agriculturalist. Uh, there's nothing like hands-on experience to imprint positive, long-lasting uh, memories on kids. And ha having this grant uh, be so broad opens the doors to creative projects that will support our shared community values. I'm hopeful that we will get new farmers and ranchers 
uh, operating in the county and making connections with our schools, our farmers markets, as well as our restaurants. And I'm also very interested to see what types of agricultural projects are approved to support the, our 2030 climate action plan. And it's, it's just really, it's all, you know, very exciting. Um, I'd like to express my appreciation to all the residents of the county who voted in favor of Measure A. They clearly understand and see the value and benefits Measure A and this grant will provide long-term to uh, the quality of life in the county. Thanks. Thank you. Good morning, President Moulton Peters, Supervisors. I'm David Lewis, Director for UC Cooperative Extension, Marin. Uh, I do want to also share my gratitude and just um, at, at this moment, the, this exciting chapter that FAIR represents for Measure A, I find myself reflecting back on the arc of Measure A and where it started. And you think back to its inception and all the way to today, Marin residents have deeply supported the shared goals, the values for, for Marin's ecosystems, its open space, and its working landscapes, both at the same time. Um, Measure A and the FAIR program today represent the chance to really make a robust connection between our urban and our rural communities and um, to really meet the needs of a, of a holistic food system for Marin County. Um, I am just, I can't even tell you the aspirations I have, the hopes I have. I don't want to get ahead of any applications or, or proposals, but I just know the robust community and school gardens, the increased access and opportunities this is going to create for our communities to, to farm and ranch. Uh, it's just really exciting to be at this stage, and it's all made possible by Sonia Hammonds and Kevin Wright and the Parks team. Uh, it's been our privilege, UC Cooperative Extension Marin, to, to partner with them. We'll continue to do that. We're there every step of the way. So thank you for your consideration of, of FAIR today. Thank you. All right. Seeing no further comment, bring it back to the board to approve. Is there a motion? Happy to make the motion. And if I could, uh, just a quick comment. Um, this is just so exciting. I'm going to echo all the same sentiments and emote all the same, some, some of what we already heard, but um, it's really exciting. And I don't even, I don't know that we really envisioned the scope and uh, innovation and range of things that might, could happen under this program when we, when we kind of designed it and sort of uh, carved out this piece of Measure A. Um, you know, it is, this was always viewed as a, a, an equity program and connecting uh, community with food and ag and especially communities that don't have that connection and, and there's a wide range of folks that don't. But also, I don't know that, I don't know that we envisioned the opportunity for the expansion of our food shed, our local Marin County food shed from ag land to the urban landscape um, and what that might look like, where it might happen, and who would be participating. And just, you know, reading through the examples of um, what potentially could happen, and I'm assuming these are ideas that have come up through the process, it's just really, really exciting. I also really appreciate um, the the sort of the scope uh, of where these grant this grant fundings can be applied from the initiation and brainstorming and planning around an idea to the actual execution of a vision to actually you know um, where do pivots have to happen or investments have to be made once a project is overway so I just really appreciate the work and thought that went into this and thinks it it's just really exciting really looking forward to 
to what happens. Thank you. And, that and that's a motion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 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 right. Motion and comment. <laughs> yes, she did. Is there a second? Second. We are going to recess as the Marin County Board of Supervisors and convene as the Marin County Open Space District Board of Directors. Good morning again, Mayor. Uh, any Board of Directors matters? Not seeing any. We'll go right to public open time for public expression. Seeing any I see one co commenter no let's see hand went down okay let's close public comment and go on to item 8c and this is our Bolinas Lagoon Y wetlands resiliency project mitigated neg deck and project approval Thank you, directors. Uh, again, Max Corton, general manager, Marin County Open Space District. And this is a very exciting day um, that has had a, a, lot of, a lot of work leading up to it. Um, this project, as uh, Veronica will describe shortly, you know, the, really the seeds for this started over a decade ago and really came out of the community that cares about Bolinas Lagoon, especially in West Marin. Um, a lot of stakeholders and partners' efforts to understand the science and look for ways to protect and restore and care for this place and help it adapt and evolve uh, in good ways. Um, you know, from a very big vision to finding a project that was potentially achievable and then starting to design and plan that project. And as it is with sea level rise uh, everywhere, it's... Um, you know, the ocean connects everything, and so biting off a chunk that is going to have a positive effect um, and can potentially connect with other uh, improvements elsewhere is uh, both a challenge but also um, really exciting. This has generated a lot of support from outside agencies, uh, grant funding from uh, the state and, and federal partners uh, has been a big part of enabling this project to, to get where it is today and to be potentially implemented. Um, and, uh, and so uh, I want to turn it over to, to Veronica. And also just with that saying that, you know, this, there's a lot of connecting lands that still have challenges, both uh, along Highway 1 with uh, adapting to sea level rise and also with its own traffic uh, challenges. And so this, this doesn't solve everything, but it, it does potentially improve the area of focus. So with that, I will turn it over to Veronica. And I want to appreciate Veronica Pearson, who's been our lead for this project planning and, and all of our sea level rise projects. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here today to present the Bolinas Lagoon Y Wetlands Resiliency Project, as well as the initial study and mitigated negative declaration for your review and approval. Um, as mentioned by Max, you know, this has been a long time coming and we've been fortunate to have a number of partners supporting us in this effort um, as shown on this slide demonstrated by the support from the Ocean Protection Council as well as the Coastal Conservancy. And um, today 
Uh, I have with me uh, our design team as well as worked on the project with uh, WRA, um, PCI, as well as online. We have uh, the Golden Gate National Parks Conservancy, uh, Danny Franco, who's been a big part of this project as well, um, as well as our other consultants, Mark Thomas, who have been guiding us in the development of the larger infrastructure transportation-related elements. So next slide, please. So the purpose of the, the pr project that we are bringing to you today um, is multi-benefit. Like we have been spending a lot of time uh, over the past seven, eight years thinking about sea level rise and the impacts that it has on our wetlands. Um, and in particular in Bolinas Lagoon, we have been thinking of it for a lot longer since early 2000s. Um, and in that period of time, we developed a number of goals with the community that we are seeking to implement with the Bolinas Y project. And they all go back to larger ecosystem processes and like how we can, can um, restore the disruption that has been the result of many, many decades of human um, development in the, in the region. Um, and in particular, it relates to how we moved creeks and how we built roads. And this project will try to restore. It won't be a complete um, you know, uh, reversal to what it used to be, but we will be making large strides to restore the hydrologic elements of Lewis Gulch Creek, which is within the project area, and elevating our roads to allow for habitat connectivity. Right now we have a disrupted system um, and we need to be able to make way for future sea level rise. We also have a number of special status species in Bolinas Lagoon that could greatly benefit from this project and that are in the project area. And um, lastly but not least, we also are helping the community by improving uh, Olimo Bolinas Road um, and allowing for um, safe access in times of flooding, uh, which we know we will see more of. Um, as well as doing what we can to make the traffic improvements that we can to the intersection with Olima Bolinas Road and State Route 1 um, and improving the sight distance for travelers that are looking to make their way north or southbound on State Route 1 from Olima Bolinas Road and allowing for safe speeds at the intersection as well. Next slide, please. So as mentioned, this is a long time coming, 2002. That was when we had the EIR EIS looking to dredge Bolinas Lagoon and received tremendous amount of a community response um, to that document. And it was from reading those letters from who are now our partners on this project um, and community members that we realized that there needed to be a shift in how we think about what restoration is. Um, and over the the coming years, we worked on special studies with the Army Corps as well as uh, other local experts to understand how the system even evolved and got to where it was and what the human impacts were that caused these changes. Um, and then we continue to work in with our partners in, in a working group that was led by the Greater Fairlands National Marine Sanctuary in 2008 to develop a number of recommended, recommended actions that could take place um, other than dredging to uh, ameliorate these impacts. And high on that list was improvements to the Bolinas Y. And hearing from technical experts, um, we decided to, um, along with your board, to 
um, to advance the development of concepts of how we can improve the north end of Bolinas Lagoon. We worked with the local community, the Bolinas Lagoon Advisory Council, National Park Service, and we developed a larger vision that this is born from of the different um, actions that not only open space district parks could take on, but also National Park Service and even helping uh, Caltrans develop a vision for what could become a state route one. So um, this larger visioning work was um, approved by the community and by your board and therefore we took action in 2019 to start developing the, the design documents that specifically relate to actions on parks lands. Next slide. So what you see here is the project area for what we call the Bolinas Lagoon Y Wetlands Resiliency Project. Uh, there's um, three major elements that I'll point to on this slide. Um, in particular, there is, uh, though it's hard to see, an extension of Fairfax Bolinas Road that we call the crossover road. And in order to be able to restore the hydrology of Lewis Gulch Creek and bring it back onto the floodplain, we have to remove that old section of State Route 1. Um, it's not only segregating these two important wetland systems, uh, but also uh, by it being located where it is, uh, it prevents the, the relocation of Lewis Gulch Creek onto its floodplain. So the project is proposing to remove that section of the road. Uh, the next major element is elevating Olima Bolinas Road and reconfiguring the intersection of Olima Bolinas ro uh, Road to State Route 1. And this allows for the third action, which is to relocate Lewis Gulch Creek underneath Olima Bolinas Road. And uh, in particular, this part of the project, the elevation of Olima Bolinas Road, went through a lot of review. We had a technical advisory committee that helped guide us in this design development. We looked at different options on how to elevate the section of Olima Bolinas Road, whether we did an arch culvert, a full bridge, causeway. We looked at uh, many options and different ways to move the creek. And in the end, this is the one that had the greatest support of the fluvial geomorphologists and fisheries biologists, um, as well as representatives uh, that were on a fish pack that is um, managed by Caltrans. So Caltrans has also been involved uh, in seeing all levels of this design from the initial concept through 90%. So we've worked um, thoroughly with all the uh, other regulatory agencies who are representatives on our TAC that included National Marine Fisheries, NOAA, um, the Coastal Commission, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So We've been very fortunate to have a lot of time invested by these different regulatory staff uh, members as well. Next slide, please. So by being able to relocate Lewis Gulch Creek, uh, it has a number of benefits that relate to the improvements that can be made to the wetlands and allowing them to move upland with future sea level rise. And we're in a really unique position here with these with Lewis and Wilkins Gulch Creek that come in, they create, um, uh, in within a very small amount of area, uh, a, a lot of diversity in the wetlands. We have riparian, brackish, um, emergent tidal wetlands, and this roughly 25 acres. And this provides important habitat for steelhead, 
potentially even Coho. Coho has returned to Bolinas Lagoon, and we've found it again. In po you know, National Park Service has seen Coho over the last three years, um, and then this is from a 10-year absence. So we have a lot of hope that potentially Coho could make use of um, this area for refugia as well. Uh, in in included is the California black rail and the red-legged frog too that are all home, and this would have many benefits um, for these species. Next slide. So we've, we've gone through the CEQA process as you have seen in the attachments. July 5th was the first day of the comment period uh, when it was open and it closed on the 8th. We received over 27 comments and a number of these were also um, in support, um, 18 of those. Uh, and we were also uh, um, included, we also included a number of changes to our initial study to address, um, clarify uh, parts of the project description based on the comments that we've received and also improvements um, uh, to the mitigation measures under cultural resources and transportation. Uh, so those comments have been uh, submitted to your board for review. Next slide, please. We've also been working uh, to engage the, a number of different tribes in the project. Uh, in particular, we have been corresponding with the Federated Indians of Great Rancheria and this uh, started back when we were doing our subsurface investigations before we even advanced our concept designs. They participated uh, in the uh, field investigation work and all reports have been shared with them and we continue to make efforts to engage them and will also likely um, use them as tribal monitors once construction begins. And the next slide. Since the initial study has been out, we've also participated in three different uh, public forums to share out the project information. Uh, included in that is the Bolinas Civic Group, the Bolinas Community Public Utility Districts, and uh, as well as the Bolinas Lagoon Advisory Committee had a field visit or a site visit to the project area so we could answer questions in the field with anyone who was interested. Next slide, please. So getting close to wrapping it up now, we um, have a number of next steps that we are already getting ready to roll out on. Uh, in particular are, is the grant funding that you'll see coming to your board starting at the end of the month with the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation grants and the WCB grants. So roughly we have uh, over seven million in, um, in grant funding. We have enough funding to construct the project included in, and that is the ARPA funding that was um, uh, approved by your board uh, for this fiscal year. So with this funding, now we are going to uh, bring on a resident engineer, construction management firm to begin uh, reviewing the final designs with us and uh, also preparing for bidding the project early next year. Hopefully we could bring, uh, get all our permitting secured before the end of 2023 so we can start some non-native invasive species work. That would be led by the Golden Gate National Parks Conservancy. We're partnering with uh, uh, Conservation Corps North Bay as well um, to help us implement that um, that effort and um, we are looking at two years of construction. So 
Uh, that would begin roughly with the larger infrastructure elements uh, in June of 2024 and go to roughly October. And then the following year, we would have the second year. So the first year is primarily focused on all work above the crossover road. So the crossover would remain so it could carry traffic and there would be no disruption to um, flow to State Route 1 from Olima Bolinas Road. And then the second year, the new section would be open of um, with the bridge and the crossover road would be removed. Next slide. So our, um, with that, our final recommendation is that you receive public comment on the proposed initial study and mitigate and adapt, um, and adopt the resolutions um, for the ISMND and uh, as well as uh, direct staff to file a notice of determination and also adopt a resolution approving the proposed Bolinas Lagoon White Wetlands Resiliency Project. Thank you so much. Thank you for the report, Veronica, and all the years of work that everybody's done. Uh, questions from the board? Yeah, thank you. Uh, Veronica, thank you for bringing this forward and getting it to this point. I know it's probably been a long time even for you and you probably weren't there at the beginning. I don't think many of us were. Um, I'm wondering, um, across the road on the um, other side of Highway 1, was there any work that's going to be done there? Wilkins Creek, I believe it is. Is there anything that's happening there? Yes, um, not on lands uh, owned by National Park Service. Um, one of the needed improvements is the elevation of State Route 1. So in the larger vision document, the North End, project uh, proposed a couple of options for elevation of Highway 1, but in order to be able to restore Wilkins Gulch Creek's watershed, that would be necessary. Okay, thank you. And then on your uh, plan view, you have indication of the Lewis Creek, I believe it is, um, and you're indicating some structures there in the creek. Is that what the little red marks are indicating? Yeah, so you can see some um, what is basically large woody debris that would be placed as well as some log, log structures to um, deflect the flow of water. Some of them are like habitat enhancement. So this is what we want to do is to create some channel dynamism. So with the flow coming at those different structures, hopefully we will get the natural creation of pools um, and uh, as well as some of the logs are put in there to deflect the flow in a certain direction that we want to hopefully encourage the channel to remain within. Um, but for the most part, the project is really like just allowing space for the creek to self-form. Great, thank you. Let's open the Not seeing anyone in the chambers, anyone online? Yes, the first speaker is Ralph Camichia. Please unmute. Mr. Camichia, it looks like we can see you unmuted, but we can't hear you. Please check your okay, mic. Okay, I'm right here. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm Ralph Camichia, a longtime member of the Black Committee and um, former chairperson. I've been part of many Bolinas Lagoon park, Parks and Open Space projects over the years. But this project, however, is a multi-win for the County of Marin, for West Marin residents and visitors, and the Bolinas Lagoon itself. This project addresses the environmental enhancement to the lagoon's dynamics and function, 
solves in removing a persistent flooding problem on the Bolinas Olima Road at the Bolinas Y and addressing and hopefully solving a deadly intersection problem at the Bolinas Highway 1 um, and the Bolinas Olima Road uh, crossover road. I just want to give my sincere thanks to Veronica Pearson for her expert work on this project. And I want to thank you, the Board of Directors, for your support. Thank you. The next speaker is Clayton Smith. Please unmute. Once again, we have these assertions that the always future sea level rise um, is of concern. To whatever extent to which it is occurring, at least over the last 50 plus years that I have lived in Moran, it has been almost unnoticeable. Yet we are constantly inundated with the mem that catastrophic sea level rise lies right ahead in our future and requires uh, these very expensive mitigations. However, there is little to no actual empirical evidence to justify these assertions and it does little to help develop a productive dialogue with the public in the absence of some truth on this issue. These projects do not need to have this assertion always put in front of them to present as their justification. Uh, in this particular instance, uh, the project actually can stand on its own. It's a valid project. And so I wonder why we have this reflective um, sea level rise assertion always embedded in the lingo in which these things are put before the board. I think that at, at, a, at some point in time, I think the public will, when they notice that the sea has not risen, are going to begin to uh, look at all of this as being kind of ridiculous. And I would hope that the people involved in this would actually get some education, go online, and really find out what, what sea level rise actually is occurring. And it's, it's not catastrophic. But I do agree, this is a good project. I hope you go forward with it. President Mullen Peters, there are no additional speakers on LinkedIn. Okay, thank you. We will bring it back to the board. We have just received public comment. We can now move on to adopting the resolution, adopting the proposed initial study and mitigated negative declaration for the Bolinas Lagoon Y Wetlands Resiliency Project. If someone would make that motion and second, we'll do that. I'll move that motion. Second, and if I can just make a couple quick comments. Yes. Um, yes. So I just want to thank Veronica and the much broader team. I think with the number of agencies involved here, um, many people would have walked away at many different times. Um, and I really appreciate the persistence and just keeping it moving forward and finding funding um, to do this from a number of different avenues. I also, you know, when, when reviewing this, I was thinking of the College of Marin um, Bolinas Field Station and sort of what's the tie and what's the connection. And I would just encourage as, you know, you move on to the next step to offer the environmental documents, et cetera, to College of Marin Library um, because there's, I think there's some opportunity 
my a few years ago in my undergraduate years, I wrote my, my thesis on a road project's impact on water and really found those documents, you know, a, a point in time of history that provided a lot of information and benchmark going forward. And I think with Duxbury Reef and everything, there's so much that's happened. Um, it'd be great to keep that for others to use in the future. So thank you, and I am happy to second this. Motion and a second for our first resolution. All in favor? Aye. Aye. And now to our second resolution, approving the proposed wetlands resiliency project. I so move. Second. Second. Okay. Motion by Rodoni, second by Rice. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Okay. Go forth and make it happen. <laughs> Thank you Thank very you. much. Congratulations. Okay, we are going to adjourn as the Marin County Open Space District Board of Directors, and we will go into closed session as the Marin County Board of Supervisors, and we'll see you at 1.30 in public session. We are going to reconvene an open session. We just had a closed session and direction was given to staff. We are now going to conduct interviews for various boards and commissions that are open. And uh, with the forbearance of those of you who are here for the first Public Financing Authority, JPA, if you'll bear with us, I'd like to go ahead and do the one single appointments to two other boards, and we're going to table another uh, board. So uh, if uh, my board will also agree that we'll go ahead and start with the Disaster and Citizen Corps Council, followed by the Women's Commission and the Youth Commission, we're going to table item 10C, the Measure A Community Oversight Committee, bring that back next week. So if that's acceptable, then I'd like to go ahead and uh, move to the Disaster and Citizen Corps Council. And uh, we have one application that was received from Michelle Terrell. I move that we appoint <coughs> Michelle Terrell at, for the at-large position and continue the recruitment for remaining vacancies. Second. Okay, we have a motion for Donnie, a second by Lucan. Is there any public comment on this item? I'm not seeing any in the chambers. Is there any online? All right, uh, so we had a motion and a second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Okay. Our next appointment, again, we are skipping 10C and uh, holding till next week. Continuing next, it would be 10D, the Women's Commission. We have one vacancy due to a resignation, and we have one application. I'd like to move we appoint Elizabeth Max to the Women's Commission and thank Barbara Anderson for her service. Well, second. Okay, very good. We have a motion by Rodoni, a second by Rice. Is there any public comment on this item? I'm not seeing any in the chamber. Is there any online? I'm not seeing any online. 
Thank you. Okay. Uh, all in favor of appointing Elizabeth Max, please aye. say aye. 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 Okay. Thank you. Congratulations. And then finally, Youth Commission 10E. Uh, we have one at-large appointment. We have a, a recommendation for Sarah Williams from the recent recruitment process. Is there a motion? I will move Sarah Williams. Second. We have a motion. Rise to second. Second. Any public comment on this item? Not seeing any in the chambers. Any online? Okay. All in favor of appointing Sarah Williams? Aye. Aye. Okay. Thank you. You've made that appointment. Great. Okay. That will bring us back to item 10A. This is the Marin County Public Financing Authority JPA Board of Directors. I'm sorry. It's, yes, yeah. Board of Directors. Yes, we have two vacancies. And we have an incredible uh, group of candidates who've all put forward applications. We'll be interviewing them all today. Uh, the way this works is that we'll interview you one at a time uh, in alphabetical order, and, uh, and then each uh, supervisor will nominate uh, four uh, for this posi these positions, and then we'll use a, uh, a top two uh, uh, deciding process. So I want to thank everyone for applying. You, you have a wealth of skill and talent. We'd be lucky to have all of you on the board if we could. Can I ask one question? Yes, you can. Um, I'm just trying to remind myself. So there's five, there's a total of five people on the board. The county, we, we, um, we appoint three and MCOE appoints two. Is that how That's it's correct. working? That's correct. Okay. All right. And the current and, and Supervisor Radoni is already a county representative, and then the, the two vacant positions um, are remaining. Okay. And MCOE has made their They've appointments? They've made their appointments already. All right. Yes. Great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's, I think it's like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Dave Anderson, do we start with you? Were you always the first in? Ask one more question. Of course you can. Yes. And Supervisor Rodoni, of the MCOE seats, can you tell us who's on there? I, I, what I'm yeah, wondering is. Yeah, Ken Lippy is okay. the, uh, as well as Patty Garbarino. Okay. Thank are you. the two uh, MCOE. And I guess just to give a little overview of this, uh, this you know, obviously this is a, a, a new and exciting JPA where we're trying to create workforce housing both with the county and the schools. Um, I mean, as far as what this group will be doing, it's kind of establishing the, the board initially, making sure there's a successful launch of the Oak Hill, and then, as your board has mentioned, looking for other opportunities in the future and partnerships with the school to create workforce housing in our community. So, yes, As far as you. what you were recommending, we, the, you wouldn't want us to put forward four names, and then we would see if out of that there's two that emerge, and if there's a tie, we figure that out. Yes, later that's right okay thank you yeah. great okay we're each going to take a question welcome dave thank you for coming today thank uh, you stephanie we uh, we have your materials and we've read them and we're each going to take a question and we're going to start with supervisor sackett why are you interested in, in serving on this board you know uh, serving on the oak hill board it allows me to use my professional skills that i've developed over the last 30 years and I would say a deep commitment to public service um, to make an impact on what I think is the number one challenge in Marin County, which is 
housing affordability. Uh, my family and I moved to Marin County in 1989, so we've been here a long time, most of our, most of our life, our adult life. And I've consistently served the community in a variety of ways, often in financial roles, because I have a significant amount of financial and project management expertise, which I can uh, provide more detail later. But I'm the son of a public school teacher. I'm a former um, naval officer. My wife was a deputy district attorney for the county for 13 years. So I have a deep commitment to public service, and I think we need to have we need to be an inclusive county where teachers and other public servants and people who may not have a lot of economic advantages can afford to live here as they work here. And so I think the Oak Hill project as well as other projects are gonna help make that a reality and so that's why I wanna serve on the board. Rise right, please. All right, so um, thank you for your interest. And um, so considering sort of two things, uh, one, you understand this is sort of the launch of this, of this JPA, of this board as it were. And then you've just heard, we just spoke a little bit about the composition of the board in that the other two seats are filled by MCOE, one by a trustee and one by um, uh, one of the assistant superintendents, I can't remember what, of MCOE. So my question is, is um, what do you think that you bring to the board at this moment in time um, in terms of your personal and or professional experience that makes you, make you a good fit at this moment? So, um, you know, I think I bring a combination of skills and perspectives that it would be very valuable uh, for the board. I've served on a lot of nonprofit boards. Uh, Call of the Sea Board, which is an educational nonprofit in Sausalito. I've been treasurer of that board. I was deputy director for two years, uh, operating the organization in 2020 and 2021. Um, as I've mentioned uh, frequently, um, because I have fairly deep financial uh, background, that's an area that I focus on. I was a portfolio manager for the real estate division of Bank of America earlier in my career, and I focused on expanding housing opportunity and reducing the cost of housing uh, finance to particularly lower income, moderate income uh, borrowers during that, that period of time, which I think is a really critical ingredient for this board. My master's thesis was in real estate finance. Um, so it's an, it's an area in terms of the complexity of a $225 million project with two developers. Uh, you know, there's some complexity there and you need people who have the experience and confidence to be able to manage uh, and be a fiduciary, as you are on a board, to support that, that sort of project. Um, also in my professional career, I've managed very large programs and projects. So I understand how to ask the right questions, how to make sure and dig in the details that are necessary to ensure that you know, we're getting the right things done at the right time. And so those are the areas that I think are real um, strengths that I think I could offer uh, my service on the board. Thank you. I have the third question, uh, and this has to do with experience engaging with diverse communities. So if you could describe uh, any lived or professional experience you have with connecting and engaging diverse communities within the county, and how would you add to the work of the JPA in this regard? <coughs> yeah, I think it's obviously important <coughs> 
be able to engage uh, with diverse communities, uh, that's critically important for this particular uh, role. I would call out uh, my experience at Call of the Sea um, when I was deputy director in 20, 2020 and 2021, we had raised a bunch of money to be able to support scholarship opportunities. So it's important that you engage with communities that may have more economic challenges in order to be able to support the mission of Call of the Sea, <coughs> providing experiential education on San Francisco Bay. And so we reached out to Davidson uh, Middle School within San Rafael. Uh, we reached out to and partnered with the Marin City, which of course is very close by to Sausalito, uh, in order to have those communities bring students in areas where they frequently had not been. Most of the students had never been on San Francisco Bay before because that's just not an area that they have that kind of opportunity. And so it, it's obviously I felt it's important to engage with uh, the Bay for everyone, but it's particularly important for people who may not have the opportunities um, that others might have to be able to do that. And so you have to work in, in an inclusive way to support that and engage with the partnerships in those particular communities that, that help make that happen. Um, I led the Autodesk Veterans Organization when I worked at Autodesk as well uh, to ensure that veterans understood opportunities within the company, that they could engage with one another and um, support each other. They often feel not as well understood uh, within various work uh, areas, and so that was important um, as well. And uh, finally, I partnered with Dominican University and served as a volunteer for the past five years to help teach some of the courses that were involved. So we did projects that focused, again, with Call of the Sea, and so the students were engaged in projects to be able to develop the mission, the strategy, and other areas for Call of the Sea um, as part of Dominican universities. So those are areas where we reached out to very diverse communities. <clears throat> Hi, David. Hi. What significant barriers do you see in developing affordable workforce housing, and how do you think the JPA board could address some of those barriers? Well, <laughs> lack of land, right, um, or very expensive land, um, community anti-housing policy bias, sort of number two, uh, a lot of complex environmental and local regulations, number three, and high building costs or, and labor costs associated with building. So Marin County, unfortunately, um, sort of hits all of those different markers that makes, of course, the cost of our housing some of the highest in the country. And so I think the way that the JPA has been structured is really innovative, right? Because one, of course, the housing or the land supply, the land is being, as I understand it, donated by the state. So that's coming in, in a different way. I think there's likely other opportunities within the county to be able to sort of work either on state land or county land or federal land or, or other lands that are coming from uh, public agencies. Um, the community housing bias challenge that exists, I think, throughout the county Obviously, information is a really important element, and I think there's been a lot of great work to help inform people of the challenges and importance of housing for everyone and allowing those folks, public servants and other economically challenged communities to have housing opportunities to actually you know, live where they work. So there's a lot of information that is important as part of what you're uh, doing as well. And uh, of course, some of, because of the state's involvement in this, some of the local housing regulation, I read through the 
210-page EIR. And, you know, some, so there's some benefits to that, right, of, of not having to necessarily uh, comply with every Larkspur city, you know, housing regulation because, of course, it's sitting outside of, of Larkspur or other parts of the county. So, again, the, the innovation of this uh, program, I think, allows you to partially mitigate some of the challenges that really impact, uh, you know, what's going to be happening here. Of course, the housing finance costs, you know, you need to be able to access money as inexpensively as possible. The cost of money has been going up the past, uh, you know, six months, a year. So, you know, having a public board like this allows us to have some lower costs of financing, and when you're borrowing hundreds of millions of dollars, that really matters a lot. I think, you know, the last question is, is there anything else that you would like to add or you would like us to know about? Um, I guess I would just say that, you know, I'm really excited about this opportunity. It's something that just fits so many different elements of my background, my personal history, my family's commitment. And so I'd really, really enjoy uh, working with, you know, other board members to be able to support the success of this program and then other uh, programs that would uh, follow it. I think collaboration is really critical. Collaboration with the different agencies uh, inside of the county, the cities, uh, the board, the Marin County uh, Office of Education, the state, right? It's a, it's a complex web, a lot of different stakeholders. And so I think you need someone that actually, you know, has that kind of experience to work within a very complex environment and can also then work with the challenges of big programs and, and the financial issues. Because I think right now, when you look at the project of where it sits, right, we're talking about the permitting process, we're talking about the financing part of the process, right, as you've successfully overcome some of the environmental work that was done over the past year and a half. And so I think those are really critical areas that um, I'd really be excited to be supporting in the next two years, because I understand that this is a, a two-year um, appointment. So it's, um, it's the right time, and it's, uh, it's certainly the right time that I would love to be able to contribute to my community. Well, a quick last follow-up question, Dave, if I could. Any potential conflicts at all in serving on this board, just personal conflicts? Uh, None that I'm aware of. Thank you. Thanks very much. I'd like to invite Ann Peckinpah Becker to come share with us. Welcome, Ms. Becker. Thank you for thank you. Thank you for applying. Becker, and like my potential colleague here, I come from a family of educators. My mom was a lifelong kindergarten teacher. My dad was a public school principal and superintendent, and our oldest son is a teacher. So I totally empathize with the need for um, taking good care of our teachers and also as a Marin County resident, it's very vexing that many aren't able to afford to live here, you know, where we want them to be. Um, let, me, uh, let me go ahead and add, give the first question, though you're well into it, to uh, Supervisor Sackett. I think you've, you've answered, but uh, why are you interested in serving <laughs> on this board? I really love intractable problems. That's my glib answer. Um, I really am eager to use my skills in order to solve 
one of the biggest problems that is facing our county and housing at, without any doubt is the biggest problem and um, housing especially for people who work in the county but who aren't able to afford housing here. Um, we live in a wonderful county with so much to offer and I want them to be able to live here and gain from it. And I think that county funded workforce housing can be an effective solution if it's well implemented. So um, that's, that's my reason. Hello, hello, Anne. So good to see you. Um, so uh, understanding sort of where we are in terms of launching this board um, and its and its uh, work plan ahead in, in the very near near term, as Matthew spoke to, what in your personal professional background make you a good fit for for the board at this moment? I spent the last thirty years as a high tech recruiter including uh, my final years as a board of directors recruiter. And my thinking is that a board needs, a good board needs access to subject matter experts, but within itself, it needs people who know how to absorb complex information, who can think strategically, anticipate issues, um, solve problems, work as a team, and I can do those things. Sort of an all-around athlete. Um, I have the personal skills and qualities that are needed, and I believe that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. I've been on two county-appointed um, you know, groups, um, and I believe that I've performed effectively in both the CAC, the Community Advisory Committee for Sir Francis Drake Boulevard, and the CAG, which is the uh, Project Home Key um, Community Advisory Group, which um, is ongoing. And I think the best judge of that really is um, Supervisor Katie Rice, who is my supervisor. And I have the third question. Can you describe any lived or professional experience you have connecting and engaging with diverse communities within the county, and how would this add to the work of the board? This is not within the county, but this is San Francisco Bay Area. I serve on the board of a very large nonprofit organization in San Francisco. It's the San Francisco Jewish Community Federation. And um, speaking of minorities, I'm not Jewish. I'm the sole non-Jew on this board. And I am a member of the Racial Justice Task Force. I've served on that task force for three years. And then I took th what we learned on that task force to the board of directors recruiting. I was, until recently, the chair of the board nominating committee. So we took all of that learning from um, the DEI work and went to work completely new and recruited eight Jews of color to the Jewish Community Federation Board. There, before there had never been any Jews of color. Um, just for your information, many Jews of color are the children of an interfaith marriage. And um, Many of them have, uh, say, a Jewish mother and a non-Jewish father, and within the Jewish community, they find 
it very difficult to be accepted. I, that just to me was a real problem with the justice. So we recruited eight Jews of color to the board. Well, coming into this meeting, what I could think of is, uh, yes, I did, yeah. Um, coming into this meeting, I, what I thought about is the um, lack of available land, um, also the lack of available funding and the cost of money these days, and then also community opposition to housing, which I'm very familiar with. I'm winking at Katie Rice, because that's how we <laughs> we got to know each other um, was through the um, Larks of Berlanding Station Area Plan project. Um, I, I was impressed by my colleague's um, response earlier. I don't have the depth of knowledge in finance, et cetera. Uh, and then the last one, which is the wrap-up question. Uh, is there anything else that you would like to add or that you would like us to know? I think it's important for me to make sure you know I have a background in business and the analytical skills that come from getting an MBA and the nearly 30 years that I've spent advising presidents and boards on how to um, create and run sustainable businesses. So that work has involved listening skills, problem solving skills, persuasion skills, conflict resolution, and I find when I'm on um, the you know boards, like I, I have up until recently been president of the Kent Woodlands Property Owners Board, and homeowners associations are full of conflict. Um, it's you know it, it's what we deal with, and moderating that conflict is a big part of the job, and I excel at it by mostly listening, empathizing bringing people together, and so on. So I think that background would prove to be very valuable. I also, in my work on the CAG and the CAC, have done a lot of work in community outreach and communication. Um, and I also have worked in architectural design review um, for the past three years on the design review committee for Kent Woodlands Property Owners Association. I was chair for, th for two years and I remain on the committee. We review all architectural designs proposed by our neighbors um, in much the same way that KPAB would review Kentfield and Greenbrae. And any uh, personal conflicts or conflicts with this work that you are aware of? Nothing I'm aware of. In fact, even in terms of my time commitment, I'm retired. I'm leaving the Kent Woodlands Property Owners Board, so I don't really even have a time conflict. Thank you. Thanks very much. Next is Paul Jensen. Good afternoon, Paul. Thank you for joining us. And I'm going to give Mary the first question. Good afternoon, Paul. Why are you interested in serving on the board? Okay, first I want to thank you very much for this privilege to interview. 
and also providing us with the interview questions ahead of time. That was extremely helpful. I believe that the JPA presents an excellent and unique opportunity to ensure the success of the Oak Hill Apartments project. And if this effort is successful, I genuinely believe that it's going to be a catalyst for other projects moving forward. Uh, and so I, I did want to make that a point. I want to see this project built and occupied. It is the perfect project at the right location and ultimately providing a combination of, uh, of housing for lower income folks as well as the workforce in the county. I do want to say there couldn't be a better private partner than the two partners that you brought in as a development team, and that is uh, Education Housing Partners, Thompson Dorfman and Eden Housing. I have worked with both, and I would look forward to working with them again. Uh, there isn't, I, I do want to say, uh, having been involved in the past with public and private partnerships for land development, and housing, it doesn't always work. In this particular case, I think it's going to work just fine. Hi, Paul. Um, so if everybody got the questions beforehand, everyone's noticing I, t I tweaked question number two because I didn't feel like it was a current board yet. It feels like it's a board in bloom. So with that, so uh, what in your personal or professional background make you a good fit for this board at this moment? Okay, I devoted 43 years to the city planning profession and a commitment to public service, and, and that included a collective 21 years with the city of San Rafael. In fact, I retired from the city about two years ago uh, and my last stint with the city was a community development director for 10 years. So I have a lot of background in city planning. And my career includes uh, private consulting, which taught me some important lessons and skills, primarily in the understanding of the value of time and careful budgeting, particularly for development projects. And although city planners tend to be generalists with a little knowledge in everything, I learned and gained some extensive experience in the development review and construction process, mostly here in Marin County. And as we know, navigating the development review process in Marin is quite challenging. I have to say that during my years with the city of San Rafael, I was able to take the lead on changes to streamline development review for housing, primarily because housing wasn't being built and we had to find a way to get it built. And lastly, what I'd like to say is that I, can, um, I offer a strong set of skills in communication, collaboration, and problem solving, all of which are important in serving on a board or commission that is tasked with creating a, a consensus for effective decision making. And I work well with people. Uh, I listen and I treat people fairly and equally, and my perspective is find a way to say yes and uh, find a way to think outside the box in, in solutions. And with that, I believe I can offer, um, be a valuable contribution to the JPA. Thank you. Okay, uh, would you describe any lived or professional experience you have connecting and engaging with diverse communities in the county, and how would this add to the work of the board? Okay, certainly. As, as I mentioned, I served as an employee with the city of San Rafael for, for two decades, and that is the urban center of Marin and the most diverse community in Marin County. 
working for the city, I had an opportunity to serve the lower income underrepresented uh, residents of the Canal neighborhood. I had direct working relationships with Canal Alliance and Multicultural Center of Marin. We worked collaboratively on issues such as ordinance changes, boosting renter protection measures, and also long-range planning for projected sea level rise. And when it was time for the city to initiate a 20-year update of its general plan, we made sure that the Canal neighborhood was represented on the steering committee. And actually, that proved to be very successful because it helped in developing the state-mandated equity, diversity, and inclusion element, incorporating critical policies and programs for adapting to sea level rise, and then also lining up critical policies and programs as well as housing sites for the subsequent housing element update. I'm also going to mention that I led uh, the effort to update the city's relocation assistance ordinance and the development of housing for the unhoused by Homeward Bound and Project Home Key. And then lastly, during uh, this time, we partnered and gained the support of Canal Alliance in successfully designating the Southeast San Rafael area as a priority development area to address and pursue comprehensive planning for land use, including protection of the existing housing stock and sea level rise. Thank you. Afternoon. What significant barriers do you see in developing affordable workforce housing, and how do you think the JPA board could address some of those barriers? Thank you for this question. This is actually my favorite question, and if this is an op opportunity to sell myself, I'm going to right now. About seven years ago, I, I wrote a very comprehensive report to the San Rafael City Council on the barriers to housing construction, and it included about a dozen different barriers, and I'm just going to name a few since we're focusing solely on, on workforce housing and some were mentioned by the other folks that have interviewed today so far. The first is obviously the development review process, the length of time it gets pro uh, uh, projects are required to get approved. I have to say in this latest update of the countywide plan and the housing element, there's been some awesome streamlining tools that the Board of Supervisors has adopted um, by your very clever, prepared by your very clever staff. Another is uh, abuse of the California Environmental Quality Act. Um, there's been, uh, I'm a big supporter of CEQA. My background is environmental planning, but the CEQA process has been abused to prolong housing development and keep it from being built. And fortunately, there's some state changes now as well as local changes that break down that barrier. Another that also mentioned uh, earlier, community opposition to change. And that goes hand in hand with the development review process and, and CEQA process. And I personally experienced this, obviously being a city planner, but also as a resident of Marinwood about 15 years ago when there was an effort to try to get a, uh, an affordable housing project approved at the Marinwood Shopping Center. Next, I want to mention a barrier for a uh, workforce housing is financing and the availability of funding, specifically a market rate developer will come in and they can get financing to finance their project. It may be costly, but the, at the end of the day, the cost of housing goes up 
and that's borne by the purchaser. So that really prices people in the workforce out of that market. Secondly, 100% affordable housing developers like Eden Housing or Homeward Bound have access to other subsidies outside of the normal financing. And so that's what makes that's what makes it uh, available for them to build their projects. Some of the projects that we see now that are 100% affordable that are being in being, being built in this county are um, uh, have benefited from subsidies from other sources. The other is the cost of land and development in the county, and then lastly, the availability of suitable land that is unconstrained. And I think a partnership with the school district is terrific because. At some point, there may be an opportunity to tap some school sites that have some surplus land. Uh, thank you, Paul. And lastly, uh, is there anything else you would like to add or that you would like us to know? And then also any conflicts of interest that uh, we should be aware of. Okay, the second I will address first. No, I have no conflicts of interest. Um, I'm a property owner here in Marin. I'm a resident of Marin and um, I, I don't have any conflicts with the county. So uh, I have to say that I am passionate about housing and getting affordable housing, particularly workforce housing built in this county. I'm gonna mention that I serve on three boards, all related in one way or another to housing to the topic today. I serve on the Marin Environmental Housing Collaborative Board, um, which publicly supported the Oak Hill Project. I currently serve as a board member for the Marin Conservation League, as you know, a longstanding environmental and uh, respected organization here in Marin. And I was a participant in a recent work to update their housing policy, which is 30 years old. And the draft housing policy update recognizes changing times, which is awesome. Uh, because what it does do is it recognizes that there is a housing crisis it recognizes the state housing law reforms, the need for housing, and particularly that Marin needs to provide housing to be sustainable in the future. And then lastly, I wanna mention that I also serve on the board for, uh, of uh, Marin Leadership Foundation, and they support the San Rafael Leadership Institute. I don't know if you're familiar with the Leadership Institute. Uh, and I had the privilege of attending their 2023 graduation ceremony and viewed the presentation of their annual class project this year, Call Marin Home. The students produced a video which focuses on interviews of a handful of the Institute's students that are up and coming leaders in the community and their message is they work in Marin but cannot afford to live here and they wanna live here and be a part of the community. The video is really very poignant and emotional. It's available on YouTube, and it's very much worth viewing. I was privileged to serve as a speaker that day, and much of what I had to say about their class project was about the need for affordable um, and workforce housing, and ironically, I urged the students to support Oak Hill. So whether they showed up at hearings at the state, I don't know, but that was a, a plug for Oak Hill. Lastly, I do wanna say I'm impressed by the pool of applicants that you were interviewing. Some are well-skilled in affordable housing and finance, certainly far more than me. However, what I can offer is my local experience, institutional knowledge, 
and my knowledge of Marin landscape, both physically and politically. Thank you very much, Paul. We'll let you go back to the general seats and we'll invite up Maureen Kennedy. And Supervisor, she's on Zoom, so if I Very could ask good. the moderator Please. to bring her in to the panel. Maureen Kennedy is joining us. Maureen, I see you on your I name. I think we're here. Very good. There you are. You hear me? Welcome. Glad you can be with thank us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I think I can save everybody a little bit of time by saying that I think it makes sense for me to withdraw my application. I didn't realize that Supervisor Rodoni had been uh, appointed as a member, and I think it doesn't make any sense for two West Marin people to be participating on this when the project obviously is over the hill. So um, uh, I'm, I'm happy that you've got a great um, uh, clutch of candidates and uh, wish everybody the best. Thank you very much. And we know you'll stay involved in other ways, Maureen. So thank you very much. Absolutely. All right, then I'd like to invite up Derek Nell. Welcome, Derek. Good afternoon, Derek. Thank you for being here. Can you tell us why you're interested in serving on the board? Uh, yes, I can, but I, I also want to thank you for the opportunity. It's a real honor to be up here uh, with, with a great set of candidates. It, it, it's obvious to me that uh, whoever gets on the board that we're going to accomplish our common goal of uh, more affordable workforce housing. So just wanted to get that out. Um, you know, I'm interested uh, because this is something that I've been uh, a vocal proponent of for uh, for for years, and uh, I have spent a lot of time in uh, in Sacramento because I, as a school board trustee, I served as uh, the chairperson of the Joint Legislative Action Committee, which is uh, the county's educational lobbying group that's made up of trustees and uh, superintendents, and uh, we we. Primarily act. We have a you know hired lobbyist ourselves, but we primarily act as a sounding board for legislators, their staff, and other uh, committees and, and, and interest groups around education. So, um, housing has been a, a, an issue for us because it, in education, primarily because of uh, the, the ability to attract and retain uh, qualified employees here in Marin County has been very difficult uh, due to the cost of living, and housing is obviously a big part of that. So. Uh, it's uh, w the main reason I'm very interested in. Uh, Nevada Unified School District uh, for several uh, years, if not a decade, has tried several times to develop uh, affordable housing in Nevada. And for various reasons, uh, you know, f funding issues, uh, and, uh, neighborhood opposition, and, and, and um, other, other complications which just made it too difficult for us to do. And so uh, we're, we're going to continue to try, but uh, some of the fruits of our labor on, in the Joint Legislative Action Committee to get legislation passed that would allow us to develop workforce housing on our own lands is a is a is a huge success, and uh, and we are 
probably the only district in the state of California right now that has a uh, an individual specifically working, that's me by the way, uh, for the goal of developing workforce housing. Uh, I've been uh, working uh, in collaboration with um, the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation funded a grant uh, through the California School Board Association, which is our uh, you know, if you're a school board trustee, is your trade association and where you go for uh, advice, et cetera. And uh, we attended uh, training, uh, some beta training that was put forward on how school districts can go about developing workforce housing on their properties. And because uh, it was a beta training, they were very specific about the types of districts they wanted to, uh, to bring in, so they brought in four. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, uh, because of the same problems Nevada faced earlier, uh, the other three have not made very much progress at all, but uh, we're, we're all hoping for the best going forward. I also, you know, basically just want to say that I think this position is, is one, one of my s uh, strengths, and that's, that's the ability to have uh, oversight and uh, experience and, and to understand the fiduciary responsibility. Uh, I think that, you know, as you all know uh, there's a tremendous amount of responsibility when you start to uh, collect and or uh, distribute uh, taxpayer funds, so we want to make sure you do a good job and probably get into that in some of the next questions coming up. Right, Derek, thank you so much for your interest in all your work. This is going to be a really difficult decision, just so you know, everyone's bringing a lot to the to table. So. Um, if you want to talk a little bit more about your personal and professional background and what make you a good fit for this newly forming board at this moment in its experience. Well, I, w I would say similar to my success as a school board trustee um, is, is the, my combination of public and private sector experience. Um, I have decades uh, of experience working in the private sector as either an owner or an executive management. Uh, and then the last 17 years, uh, I've been uh, serving the public as a school board trustee, uh, three times um, vice chair and then uh, president of that school board. Uh, and I'm also, you know, take a lot of pride in some of the accomplishments that I uh, that we had uh, over my tenure, uh, which you know, we don't have enough time to go into now, and aren't necessarily related to uh, to housing the housing issue. Um, so it's my it's my diverse uh, range of skills. I've got uh, experience uh, in in finance, uh, human resources, uh, real estate transaction, and uh, workflow manufacturing workflow design, which includes uh, construction and engineering supervision. Um, my uh, public experience uh, is uh, one of uh, working to pass two general obligation bonds uh, totaling uh, around $240 million that I have the oversight and participated as, uh, as a major uh, participant in the construction uh, committee which uh, worked on decisions uh, as to how to proceed and priorities and scheduling. Um, in addition to the uh, construction bonds, I had the oversight uh, of the $123 million uh, uh, combined budget of restricted and general funds. And I think you probably know something about those things. In my world, it's all about education and uh, primarily human resources and ed code. Um, so um, that's my, uh, my uh, answer to that one, I guess. 
Derek, tell us about your lived or professional experience connecting and engaging with diverse communities in the county and how this would add to the work of the JPA board. Um, it's been a big part of my life uh, as a school board trustee, um, uh, doing things about uh, you know fairness and equity and uh, and, and working on uh, uh, all kinds of policies. And, and in, in one particular case, when I first started on the school board, we had a magnet school. Unfortunately, that that magnet school only attracted uh, wealthy white individuals who had time to spend an entire day to wait in line. Uh, to get into that particular school. There are other things in place that made it very difficult for members of our uh, community to attend that school. So um, I was one of the uh, trustees that worked uh, diligently to, to have that school uh, dissolved into uh, a regular uh, elementary school that would serve the, the, uh, the community that surrounded it. So I'm, I'm actually proud of that. Um, I've also been very active in uh, working with my superintendent and the board and in uh, in developing, um, uh, you know, policies uh, to promote inclusion and equity, uh, to, to find a professional development for our staff that would help them uh, uh, to learn and to help identify the systemic uh, issues that we have uh, within our society, uh, not not only for the employees but also in teaching for students and so. Um, it's just been a, like as I mentioned, I think, you know, whether it's restorative justice uh, around discipline uh, to uh, coming up with what we called our equity imperative, uh, which was uh, a resolution that, uh, that basically recognized the, uh, the disadvantages and the negative impact that some discriminatory uh, policies uh, we had had on certain individuals in our community. And uh, it, it called uh, for steps of actions for to take and it assigned resources uh, to the particular problem. And I would say that the, a lot has changed in, uh, in my tenure. It's not just uh, because I was a school board trustee, but just California in general, public education has done a pretty good job in this area and uh, will continue to uh, address it as, uh, as equity and fairness is important uh, to the success uh, for all of us because uh, it's hard for any civilization, society, or democracy to survive without an educated uh, population. I mean, so I would say that's, uh, I have strong experience in that particular area and I, and I would never lose sight of that. Afternoon. What significant barriers do you see in developing affordable workforce housing and how do you think the JPA board could address some of those barriers? Well, I think, you know, there, already been discussed a lot of the you know the we know what they are there that's lack of housing lack of funding uh, neighborhood opposition uh, costs uh, are definitely uh, an issue but what I, what I think is, is is primarily interesting for this new uh, JPA that's going forward is is to basically recognize the fact that over the last few years due to efforts uh, from the education community that I'd mentioned earlier and obviously and probably organizations uh, from cities and counties as well is that there's been a lot of legislation uh, passed over the last few years that have generated a, a whole new list of reg rules and regulations and procedures and ways to go about things uh, much in conflict with the existing rules and so it's going to come down to interpretation. So what, you're, what we're going to want on this board is someone with a lot of experience uh, in, uh, in oversight uh, and working towards um, identifying potential problems uh, in any decisions we make 
um, so, for, so, so that we don't have to spend a lot of time in the future, you know, backtracking or paying for uh, uh, legal expenses or, um, or being exposed to several liabilities because we didn't really, uh, it's at no fault of our own, we're dealing with the situation that's new to everyone. So I think this is a, a strength of mine. Uh, being in business and serving as long as I have uh, in the public is to, is to think forward and to identify and predict um, uh, what, what the best course of action will be. So I think that's an important part of this position uh, when uh, going ahead. So a lot of past experiences without a doubt a great thing and there should be a great deal of that, but I think it's a forward vision and, uh, and it's personally I feel like it's one of my strengths I'm not really good at public speaking and, this, and that type of thing, but where I come from is, uh, is, is management, knowing your, knowing your numbers, or doing pro formas, and uh, understanding the risk involved with the decisions that you're gonna make. So uh, that's, that's one approach. Uh, it, I, and then I would just basically say it's, it's similar. Uh, there's gonna be uh, new and old uh, funding options coming forward, you know, whether they're uh, new market tax credits, uh, the, act, the, uh, the general obligation bonds that this authority would be issuing or, uh, for example, ABAG's going to have uh, billions of dollars on next November's ballot that are going to come with all kinds of controls and regulations that are going to need to be identified, understood, and uh, we're going to have to take action in ways that we know will be challenged in court eventually, and uh, I feel like I have a lot of strength in that particular area. Thank you, Derek. Uh, good to see you. And the last question, is there anything else that you would like to add or you would like us to know, and also any potential conflicts of interest that might be out there? So on the conflict of interest, there's no way that personally I would be benefiting uh, in, in, any, in any such way. I, uh, I know better and uh, would, would not, I don't see a conflict of interest. I see this particular position overlapping with education in a way where my experience would benefit. I suppose if there was an opportunity to make a decision around funding something for the Nevada Unified School District, if it really mattered, if the, if, if the proposition didn't stand alone for itself, I could recuse myself because I, I'm sure that uh, the, the district would, uh, would, would be able to justify its, uh, its application for any funding that this JPA might produce for it. Um, what else to know about me is um, just that I, I am really a hard worker and I would be committed uh, and work tirelessly to the success of uh, producing more affordable workforce housing in this county. I just think it's something that we really need to do. I, I would hope that you would look to my experience as someone who uh, has uh, the ability to collaborate, uh, to lead, um, and to essentially get things done. Maybe push the, push the envelope a little bit here and there when necessary. We could go into some pension reform. Uh, things that went on in the past that turned out to be a successful outcome, which uh, we could get into. But that's, that might be an example of where I'm not afraid, afraid to bring up, uh, you know, what might be considered touchy issues, third rail stuff, uh, or, or to, to, to see if we can uh, to make things work um, uh, to, to achieve our goal. And um, I think that sort of describes me the best way. So, again, thank you very much. Next is Isis Spinola Schwartz. Welcome. Thank you for coming to see us today and applying. And 
Mary, I'll let you start in. Good afternoon. Why are you interested in serving on the board? Um, first, I'd like to say thank you for the opportunity to be here, and uh, I'm amazed, and as I hear all of the different uh, individuals who have applied for this uh, board position, so the interest is great because the need is great as well. Um, and I, I'm a longtime Marin County resident, and I've worked in uh, development, in real estate development for the last 20 years, and my biggest interest is in affordable housing. Um, and uh, it, not just in Marin County, but in the state of California, specific, uh, in particular. More specifically to this post, um, I am a, a county resident who raised two children here, one who became a school teacher, and when it came time for him to find his you know, career position, he actually decided to move to Oregon because he told me, Mom, I could never afford to raise a child here like I have been raised. And uh, that was something that uh, really impacted me gravely, even though I was already working in affordable housing and developing housing to feel that my own child could not afford housing in, uh, in the county. And additionally, I believe my skills in developing affordable housing and also as a developer, someone who has been engaged in the development process from beginning to end, from imagining what the new building will be, uh, procuring the architects, the landscape architects, going through the planning process, managing a budget, and then seeing that project to completion. I think those are the skills that I bring to the board, that I would bring to the board, and that's why I decided to apply. Thank you so much for your interest and uh, for the work that you've done um, in your in your day job uh, in terms of developing housing and helping helping housing be developed. Um, my question is, um, what um, given given where this JPA is or this board is at this moment, sort of launching, and the project um, before it at the moment, um, and what's to come? What in terms of your personal and professional background make you a good for good fit for the board at this moment? Yes, um, I from hearing from all the other board uh, um, applicants, you know, there is a diversity of skills there finance skills, people who have worked on the various boards, like the education board, the last speaker just mentioned. And also I see that the elected officials come from diverse backgrounds. So to zero in on my work that I've done within the county, more recently I've worked on a project, uh, a mixed-use residential project that is located at the corner of uh, B and 2nd Street in Centerfell. Um, and uh, that project is a four-story residential development which has affordable housing and some commercial at the bottom. And I, as a project manager and developer, I worked with the city of San Rafael, with the planners. I worked with PG&E, with uh, the uh, utilities departments to ensure that we got all of the permits with on time. And also the challenges of working with a developer is at the budgetary concerns. When we talk about budget as an issue, uh, in public projects, it's equally an issue in privately developed projects because as one applies for the loans, there is a finite fine, you know, uh, money that we have to work with. So my experience in actually taking a project in a very, very tight budgets and timeframes and guidelines 
and getting to completion is one of the unique skills that I have right here in Marin County. In addition to the work in Marin County, uh, just last year, the company for which I am the COO, Forge Development Partners, we delivered two new uh, buildings in San Francisco in the San Francisco Tenderloin District. And this project also is for the focus of the development was for workforce housing and uh, also affordable housing. So as mandated by the city of San Francisco, we had 14% affordable housing on site. But the balance of it, about 35% additional numbers of units were uh, targeted for people making between 85 and 130% of the area minimum income. So that's something that I don't think has been discussed here today, is that when we are talking affordable housing and f uh, workforce housing, uh, in particular for, student, for, for teachers and uh, fire uh, department uh, staff, uh, it's important to know which is the target area and what we are building for. So what's the area minimum income will be something that will be tar uh, discussed and that we'll be targeting for. And in addition to this, those skills of really taking a project from beginning to end, uh, complex projects with, com with uh, very diverse jurisdictions, working in the Tenderloin, we had the Tenderloin Neighborhood Development Corporation. We had housing people who actually were against the project because there will always be people who, uh, to whom no project is better. It doesn't matter what type of project, what type of niche that, is being trying, that we're trying to fill. So as a liaison for the community uh, I, for FORGE, I worked as the liaison to work with all of the different constituencies in order to achieve a better uh, working relationships so that we could actually bring the project to completion. And as you know, Marin County is difficult to work with as, as to get projects approved, but so is San Francisco. So I'm very proud to be uh, part of uh, the solution of uh, bringing affordable housing uh, to completion. You just alluded to it, Isis, but I'm gonna ask you to describe your lived or professional experience connecting and engaging with diverse communities uh, within the county, and then how would this add to the work of the JPA board? Yes, um, I have always strived to be part of my community here in Marin. As a 30-year Marin County uh, resident, I've served on a couple of boards, and specifically, I served on the, the I live in, um, in Strawberry, and I was a member of the Strawberry Recreation District Board for five years. And during one of those years, I also was the chair of the board. During my tenure on the board, I was also a member of the Human Resources and, and um, the Finance Committee, where we oversaw the budget of, the, of the, the recreation district. So I think it was a way for me to participate in, in a very small way, uh, but within the county, to, see, to define where the funds were going to be spent, how we were, they were going to be dispersed in our community but also in the HR capacity to bring a more diverse group of people to work for in the, the Strawberry uh, Recreation District. In addition to that, I also wor uh, worked, I mean, uh, volunteered with the Strawberry Design Review Board. I am a licensed landscape architect. So in that capacity, I brought my skills as a landscape architect and also a planner uh, to ensure the projects that came in were reviewed in a way that took into account 
environmental impact and also fit within the community. But also, I, I, you know, I helped uh, run a board that was inclusive, that heard all voices. And in particular, when we were um, faced with all of the opposition to the seminary project, I worked with Marine County, with Marine County planners to ensure that all voices were heard. And as uh, that was a very contentious project, but it's still uh, moving forward, uh, and uh, I'm proud that I was uh, a member of that. Uh, looking back a few years, you know, a decade, you know, like uh, with Paul Jensen's team uh, in the city of San Rafael, I was a student at uh, Dominican University working on my MBA, and I've, I became an intern working with uh, Linda Jackson and uh, Bob Brown on the Climate Action Plan, the first Climate Action Plan in California, and actually I think it was the pilot plan for the state. And uh, during that process, I worked on the outreach uh, for the Canal Alliance. I am an immigrant. I speak several languages, so I think that was part of the reason why that uh, Linda and Bob also wanted me included, but also because of the fact that I can join community groups and speak the language, uh, at least understand what uh, what impacts immigrant communities face as in, in the uh, Marin County. Afternoon. What significant barriers do you see in developing affordable workforce housing, and how do you think the JPA board could address some of those barriers? I, th I think it's remarkable that this uh, board is already starting. So that is like a, a great first step uh, in the right direction. Additionally, uh, the team that uh, the JPA has set forth, you know, as mentioned by Paul Jensen, uh, the uh, Thompson Dorfman, uh, Eden Housing, which is an amazing organization as well. Uh, so those, you have the, I, I would say the, the base uh, started. And I think the challenges, as also mentioned, will be neighborhood um, groups, the nimbyism that exists uh, within the county, and it just opposition to housing. So I think it's important in, in, in this particular context to be able to bring the community together and to explain that this is it's a, an issue of its equity, its uh, justice, it's also sustainability, because that's something that we haven't discussed here, is that the more we have housing within areas that where people do not have to drive and impact the roads, and they are living within their communities and contributing to the communities, that's the meaning of creating work workforce housing within communities. If that is actually brought to fore and spoken about, I think that we will improve the adherence in the neighborhood buying into the process because they think that's, one, that's going to be one of the greatest challenges. And also costs. Uh, as someone working right now, I have several projects uh, at Forge for which we had funding, but the funding in one of them has been cut. So to procure funding, but also to ensure that the project budget, that we bring the projects on budget, uh, that will be a big challenge. And as someone who has, a, as a COO, that's my role. Make sure that the contracts are written uh, and that the architects and the, uh, the designers adhere to the budget, adhere to a timeline, and that we also procure materials, that the, the, the hiring the right contractor, so vetting uh, contractor, but ensuring that we stay on budget. So I would say, you know, 
uh, neighborhood uh, adherence, but also budget and financing because it's uh, cost overruns. And there is going to be, um, there will be additional costs because that's inevitable in the process of construction. Thank you so much, Isis. Uh, so is there anything else that you would like to add or you would like us to know and also any potential conflicts of interest? Yes, um, well, I would like to know that um, as a planner and a mother and somebody who has the privilege of calling Marin County home, in which I believe it is a privilege uh, to live here, um, and because we view the community as the lungs of the Bay Area, we have more green area per capita than any other uh, Bay Area community, I believe. I believe that we can maintain that uh, by creating a movement to plan accordingly, to plan in an environmental way and to plan in a sustainable way. And by bringing sustainability and environmental issues to fore, I think we can get more people to really get involved and say, yes, this is important, and equity and inclusion are equally important uh, to the completion of these projects. Uh, and any potential conflicts of interest that might be out there? The only conflict would be that I think that we really must, must, must get this done, and I'll go through every step that possible that, uh, to try to get it done if I'm selected. Thanks. Thanks very much. Okay, last but not least is Engardo Vasquez. Welcome, Engardo. Thank you for coming. Thank you for applying. Yeah, thank you. Can you guys hear me? Yes. Yeah, thank you, Edgardo. Thanks for being here. Why are you interested in serving on this board? <coughs> well, first of all, thank you for interviewing me. I appreciate it. And uh, I see there's a lot of great candidates, so I uh, appreciate that. So uh, I'm interested in serving on the board because I believe that investing in workforce housing in Marin County is of vital importance. Uh, Marin's workforce is the backbone of the county. Having a varied workforce requires having housing available to many different income levels, but often, it is, but often it is our workforce that is priced out of living in the same communities that they serve. We cannot continue with business as usual in Marin <coughs> as it is if Marin is going to thrive. Many of the youth in the county do not see themselves staying because it has become too expensive and not enough housing is available. Housing has long been an issue in Marin County and it continues to be a point of contention. This JPA offers a unique opportunity to build bridges and find solutions to be a part of the housing issues that are being faced in the county. That's why I want to serve on this board. <coughs> My best at being Katie. Um, would you, Engardo, explain uh, what in your personal professional background make you a good fit for the board at this time? Yeah, so something that I've noticed in these spaces, people like to say how long they've been in the county. Uh, I've been here my whole life, 29 years, born and raised. Um, so I've lived <coughs> through these experiences. Um, all of my work experience since completing my master's degree has focused on connecting with diverse communities in Marin. <coughs> Sorry, I'm a little... We'll, uh, we'll get you some water. <laughs> um, so yeah. I've been in Marin my whole life. During my time with the Housing and Federal Grants Department here in the Community Development Agency with the county, I worked with the community outreach team through uh, housing element workshops, 
and with Spanish-speaking communities like that of Santa Venetia. I'm particularly proud of the engagement that we did with Santa Venetia, as it was the first time that the county had engaged with this community in this capacity. We heard many familiar stories of housing insecurity from people who work in the same county. During my time with the Housing and Federal Grants Department, <coughs> pardon, thank you. I'm sorry about that. In my current role with Canal Alliance, I'm a planner for the Marine Climate Justice Collaborative. We're working on creating a neighborhood plan for the Canal community in San Rafael and that of the community in Marin City. Um, I believe that engaging with these communities has given me um, a different perspective of you know similar issues that we're kind of facing um, in different sectors of Marin County. Um, this uh, engagement has also kind of brought to light the need for uh, workforce housing issues uh, in our county, not only for the workforce, but for people that you know are trying to live in the community and stay in the community, so there is a need for housing in that realm. Uh, this is gonna seem redundant, but I'm going to ask question number three, which is please describe any lived or per professional experience you have connecting and engaging with diverse communities in the county, and how, how would this add to the work of the JPA board? <coughs> Can you repeat, what number is that question? Question, question number three. So, um, I'm young in my career. I don't have perhaps the career experience that other interviewers might have, but I consider that a strength, um, a fresh of breath air, if you will. I believe that my lived experience and educational experience make that into a strength having worked for the county and now Canal Alliance. I've been able to build relationships uh, through different departments and sectors, which I believe is a valuable asset that can be leveraged. Living in Marinwood for 29 years, I've benefited from the opportunities provided in our, our county. I've been a student at the College of Marin and transferred to UC Berkeley where I majored in urban studies and my, master in city, in my master's in city and regional planning. Housing issues in Marin are exasperated by the large income gap Working folks are being severely rent burdened, meaning that they're spending more than 30% of their income on housing. And these are issues that not only have I lived, but also studied um, uh, during my time at UC Berkeley. And I believe that this can be a strong asset for the JPA, having a different perspective that the county has been missing. Living in Marin, um, I have benefited from opportunities that uh, come with having secure housing and having housing in the area that I have grown up in. Good afternoon. What significant barriers do you see in developing affordable workforce housing, and how do you think the JPA board can address some of those barriers? Yeah, so financing housing projects, as you guys have heard, is a significant barrier. As you know, the cost of material and labor are rising. Interest rates are high as well. All of these contributing to uh, the barriers that are being faced. However, there is some hope at a regional scale, the barrier have Housing Financing Authority, or BAFA, has the bond measure next year that could be potentially billions of dollars coming down the line. Um, the county can leverage existing um, housing funds to you know, take a big step forward in addressing this issue of, uh, of housing and workforce housing in the area. And the Oak Hill Project is you know, the perfect project for that. And the last question is, is there anything else that you would like to add or that you would like us to know? 
and any uh, potential conflicts of interest as well? Yeah, uh, no conflicts of interest, uh, but being a person of color in Marin, you see a different spectrum of issues that might not be the experience for others in the county. As a young adult, I had experienced the difficulties of finding housing and understanding why many people around me, my age or younger, see themselves rippling further and further away from their communities. This is a unique opportunity to build solutions in the area where many see it as a tall task. I believe I bring a unique perspective through my lived experience and my educational background and a yearning to create progress. Let's move forward together. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, I'm going to give my colleagues a few minutes to deliberate. You have all been so tremendously qualified applicants. I want to thank each and every one of you for applying. This is not an easy job now to give our give our selection. So give us a few minutes and then we'll start in. We're ready. Supervisor Rodona, would you like to start? Sure. Thank you for the opportunity and I want to thank all the applicants. Very, very qualified field of applicants. Um, and in not in order of importance, I've identified four, I believe, is what I yeah, need to yes, identify. Yes, we're all identifying four. So uh, Ms. Swartz, Mr. Jensen, Ms. Becker, and Mr. Vasquez. This will be my four. 
Very good. Uh, Supervisor Sackett, would you like next? Thank you. I appreciate all the candidates. It gives me hope that we can build workforce housing in this county, so it's very exciting. Um, I would go forward with um, Mr. Vasquez, um, Ms. Schwartz, uh, Mr. Jensen, and Mr. Anderson. Okay, Supervisor Lucan. Uh, yes, I would. Uh, my four would be uh, Paul Jensen, uh, Derek Nell, uh, Isis, and Edgardo. Okay, and uh, Supervisor uh, Rice has had to leave us, so it'll just be the four of us voting at this point. So um, my votes are for David Anderson, Paul Jensen, uh, Isis Vanola Schwartz, and Edgardo Vasquez. So give us a moment to tally and see where we are. Supervisor Rodoni, this was your vote for four. <laughs> what do you suggest for tight? So I would suggest that we pick one at this point. But why don't you go two of the three? Okay. And, and each of you do two of the three. I think we'll end up. Okay. Yeah. You want me to start? Sure. All right. Two, two of the three with the same. Okay. Okay. Mr. Vasquez and Mr. Jensen. Um, um, also, Mr. Jensen and Mr. Vasquez. Okay, I'm going to do uh, Ms. Uh, Spinola Swartz and Mr. Jensen. That's also what I was going to do, and that's going to put us a tie again. <laughs> Next suggestion. <laughs> well, the next suggestion would be that you, well, I guess there's just four of us, so yeah, we can go on <laughs> and on. Um, well, I think from that last round, there were, there were four votes for Paul, is that correct? Yeah. So can, should we go ahead and at least make one one appointment for certain, and then that would make sense, and then pick one. Yeah, Mr. Vasquez. Uh, Mr. Vasquez as well. Ms. Spinola Schwartz. Eric, you're a tiebreaker. This is so hard. Um, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and vote for, uh, for Edgardo. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we've we got to make a decision here. Um, 
I, I was really impressed with all the candidates that we received. Sorry it came down to, you know, a third round tiebreaker, whatever, however this sorted out. Um, but it means that there's a lot of interest there. Um, and I know the Marin County Office of Education, I think, has an appointment as well. And um, hopefully this is just the, uh, the start of more models like this and more opportunity. Yes, all right, so if I could have a motion to appoint uh, Mr. Jensen and Mr. Vasquez. I so move. Second. All in favor? Aye. 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 Okay, thank you, and thank you again to everyone who applied. Please keep involved.